You are listening to Zen and the Art of Triathlon. Hey there, all you Zentri studs and studettes. Welcome to another great episode of Zen and the Art of Triathlon, the podcast where we go long on endurance and learn a lot about ourselves along the way. All right, this episode, we're going to do two different things. Right up front, I'm going to give you some tips on how to train in the heat and stay cool. If you're in the Northern Hemisphere right now, it is unbelievably hot. And then there's some places where it's dangerously hot. And I have, over the years, figured out some great methods, tried and tested and true, to keep you cool that you can do for all three sports. And I'll detail that real quick. And then the second thing is we went as a family and raced the UCI Gravel World Championships. Gravel World Championships qualifier in Fayetteville, Arkansas. And I recorded from beginning to end all the tips and tricks that I used, locations that we stayed at, ate at, everything about doing this race. And as always, I recorded it in a way, even though it's a bike race, I recorded it in a way that applies to triathlon, trail running, and of course, bike racing. And most importantly, I detail the particular things on how much time they would save if you did it like this and start adding them up and come up with somewhere like around 15 minutes easily, maybe 20, maybe 30 minutes, depending on the race and you, to get you to the finish line faster, happier, healthier, safer, and cooler. And as I mentioned several times before the goodies run out. But all right, before we do that, let's do just a little bit of endurance sports news. Okay, as far as Ironmans and half Ironmans and big triathlons go, there's been some races. There ain't no way that I'm running a marathon in the middle of the afternoon right now. (laughs) So I haven't been paying anywhere near as much attention to those at the moment because there's no way I'm doing one in this heat as I have been to a few other things which are of really great interest. If you've been a longtime listener of Zentri, we do other sports as well, such as ultra marathons. And the big news is Courtney DeWalter won the Western States 100 just a while ago. And I think she broke the female, the women's record, was it by an hour? More than an hour, which is unbelievable. Apparently they had... Uh, some of the best conditions that you can have. So that helps. Well, that doesn't help you break the record because those conditions have happened before. It just shows what a phenomenon she is. And I think she also just won the Hard Rock 100. Now, the Western States 100 can be where it's pretty hot, although it starts around Lake Tahoe and they did have to go through some snow. So it's a little bit cool at the beginning and the afternoon gets really hot. Hard Rock 100 is up in the... Silverton, Ure, Telluride kind of area. And that's really high altitude Colorado. So that's a lot cooler. And a lot of the ultra distance trail runs that happen around the country happen mostly kind of more in the, in the winter months. 
like the Rocky Raccoon that I like to do is in January, almost February. So there's that. Just absolute phenomenon. Courtney DeWalter, congratulations on how she's doing. And then in the gravel racing scene, which is the bike racing scene in North America, Keegan Swenson. And for those of you that don't know who that is, it's K-E-E-G-A-N. Keegan Swenson. Google him. This guy is winning everything. Lifetime, the company that likes to throw lots of money behind endurance sports events. For this, Is this the second year in a row? They're sponsoring a series and a grand prize for the person that wins the most out of a whole bunch of different gravel races across the country. And Keegan Swenson is in the lead, and he's just destroying it. I think he's won every single race that, that he's in. And then... Also, of course, as of this recording, we're right in the middle of the Tour de France. I think there's a rest day tomorrow, which would be the second race day. And Vinegar and Pojakar are neck and neck in a dead heat. They're only a few seconds apart for the overall GC. And yeah, I think they have a rest day and then they go into time trial. And, of course, with the Tour de France, you get lots of bike tech. And there's also been a couple of bike shows showing off the bike tech. And something that's interesting that will go into uh, the stuff I talk about here in a little bit about how to save time, the Peloton, just the overall finishing time of the Tour de France is getting faster and faster. They set a record last year again. And it has to do with the aerodynamics that they're implementing in their gear, especially, and the bikes. But mostly their gear, they used to only wear tight-fitting jersey, aerodynamic. They used to only wear really close-fitting, more aerodynamic kit, helmet, and now aerodynamic socks. You would not believe. That's something I forgot to add towards the end. Remember to add this towards the end. I did not use these during the race. But aerodynamic socks, they're just socks with vertical ribbing on them that help cut through the air a little bit faster. They save an insane amount of time and make it much easier to go faster. So the the Tour de France guys are using this as well, like all the time, every stage. And something that's crazy is they don't start their day on the bike until, I forget, it's usually like 10 or 11, but they don't finish until 5. The whole point is that they don't finish until about 5 p.m., and that's on purpose because that's prime time in Europe for people when they're getting off work to start watching the all the ceremony in the end and stuff like that for the race. It's kind of like how we watch in the United States. We watch basketball and football and stuff like that late in the evening. So that's why they do that. And I was thinking about that watching it today. I think, oh, my gosh, the heat. And then I thought, oh, yeah, I should give some tips on how I've managed to stay cool and do insanely long bike rides and not get overheated in this. And then I thought I should give some tips on how I manage to continue training through the summer with not much reduction in volume, just with a whole bunch of, just with a whole bunch of little strategies and share them on this show so that you can try them too. Oh, and then in other news, I have a couple of coaching spots still open. If you want help training to conquer your next event, reach out to me, Coach Brett, at texafornia at gmail.com. Send me an email. 
T-E-X-A-F-O-R-N-I-A, texafornia at gmail.com. Just put coaching somewhere in the subject or in the title and we can get you started. I use the number one training coaching platform in the world, Training Peaks. I coach people all over the world and we do any of the three sports, all three together for a triathlon, all the distances. And there's also a form on zentriathlon.com and there's a link at the top for Get Coached. All right, let's do this. Let's start off with swimming. So where I live here in what's called Central Texas, the Texas Triangle, between Houston and Austin and Dallas, in a little town called College Station, where Texas A&M is, we are having temperatures over 100 degrees, really high humidity, barely getting below 80 overnight, if it does at all. And what that leads to is pretty high temperatures in the out door pool. So the pool I go to, they post on the dry erase board when you go in and out what the temperature of the pool is. I've seen it lately as high as 91 degrees. The other day it was felt a little cooler, quote unquote, because it was 89 degrees. But anyway, swimming in high temperature pools is Swimming hard in high temperature water is actually really dangerous because you can't shed the heat. They will cancel open water swim events if the water temperature is too high because people will overheat and have heat stroke. And if you have any problem in the water whatsoever, that's really bad. You know, if if you're cycling, you can coast and eventually pull over and then walk. If you're running, you can just walk. <laughs> if you're swimming and you have a crisis, You cannot do anything except float and maybe drown if the water's too deep. And I've seen one open water swim, like a 10K open water swim event, where somebody died because they got overheated and got heat stroke or something like that. So this is a real thing. It really happens. And you can't shed the heat when you're enveloped in a hot blanket of water anyway. So the number one tip is to try to swim without a swim cap. That will cool you down dramatically. The problem with that is, is it pretty much fries your hair. So the the mindset you have to have is, well, it's only temporary. It's just while the water's this hot. And then I use Ultra Swim shampoo. And if I swim without a swim cap, I add in Ultra Swim conditioner. And then that makes your hair soft again. Now, I had long hair during the pandemic, and then I swam with it for a while, and then I eventually cut it, and it's a pain. So I'm not an expert on how to swim it with no swim cap if you've got long hair. If somebody would like to send me an email and pipe up about how they swim and stay cool with long hair and no swim cap or something like that to keep the head cool, I'll mention that on the next episode. The other thing is to take breaks, a little bit more breaks than you usually would. It's kind of the same stuff that goes along with biking and running. And then the other thing is reduce your effort. Just swim a little bit easier. Don't build up that heat. If you do swim with a swim cap on, uh, take a little bit longer breaks and take your swim cap off. Cool yourself off and then put it back on again for for your next set. But again, swim cap is a big one. You can swim in pretty warm water pretty pretty hard as long as you're not wearing a swim cap because the cool water will uh, run over your head. Where we get into trouble is thinking we still need to wear a swim cap. You don't. You don't have to. 
and that will make a huge difference. All right, so now let's move on to the bike. Got quite a few strategies here. We've been really successful, Kai and I, on going on long bike rides by throwing camelbacks in the freezer overnight. So they're almost entirely frozen, the whole thing top to bottom, by the ride the next morning. You can't fill them up all the way because ice expands. It'll break your camelback, but you fill it up most of the way and then let it freeze overnight. And then the next day on your long bike ride, don't touch it until the last two hours of your ride. Let it sit as a block of ice on your back and drink. It's cooler when you first get started early in the morning. And also, the earlier you start, the better off you'll be, obviously. And then what I do is if it's a four-hour ride, I don't touch the camelback until hour three. So hour one and hour two, I'm drinking off the bike, all the bottles, because it's not really that hot yet. And then after two hours, that block of ice on your back has about halfway melted. So then when you start drinking on that, you're drinking ice water and it makes a huge difference. The number one way to cool yourself off besides getting in an ice bath is to actually drink ice cold fluids and that cools you off from the inside. We're always cooling ourselves off from the outside. There's a huge tip. Also, when you're done with a workout, by the way, the first thing to do to cool down is drink a cold beverage immediately and sit in front of a fan and you will notice that you cool down so quickly. So the second half of these four-hour rides, and I'm telling you, these are the same days where it hits 101, 102, 103 degrees, super high humidity. The second half of the bike ride, we're hitting ice water that we've carried with us the entire way. And the, the physics is the bigger the block of, of water, of ice, the longer it's going to take to melt. So if you don't touch it until hour three, it remains this large volume of really cold, dense liquid. So it'll stay cold until you start sipping on it. And then as you sip on it, you're removing the cold from it, and then it'll start melting faster and faster and faster and faster, and then you'll run out of ice water right as you're finishing up your ride. So some other tips with cycling is where I live, mountain biking in the summer is pretty much a no-go. It's not fast enough, and you're in the woods, and the trees are blocking the breeze when it's this hot. Now, on some, time, on some days when it's starting to get warm, like, like middle to late spring, yeah, the shade is nice and stuff like that. But when it's this hot, you need a breeze over you all the time. And what I found is road biking, gravel biking is just fantastic because you're moving fast enough to create a nice breeze. What you do have to watch out for is when you're going the same direction in the wind and going really slow and going on a long uphill on the bike. I've got one of those on my regular route that's pretty bad. And we've got strategies to deal with that, which is take a break halfway up the hill. I'll actually talk about that on the uh, how to do this gravel race that, I, that we've got for the second half of the show. And if you can, plan your route so that the last part of the route is when it's getting hotter and hotter and hotter, that you're kind of going into the wind. A lot of us plan our bike rides so that we do the headwind first and then the tailwind second so that it's easier uh, as you start to get 
more and more tired. But what you might find when it's crazy hot is the second half of the bike ride, you want to be going into the wind because then you're getting a nice breeze over you and it makes a big difference. And you just have to psychologically say, you know, I don't care how fast I go. It's worth it to slow down, but I got this nice breeze going. So it's got a major cooling effect. Another thing that most people don't think about is when it's higher humidity, more clothing is worse than less clothing. So things like arm cooler sleeves, they really don't work once it starts getting really, really hot and humid. Because what they're relying on is the water transferring off of the material into the air to actually cool you down. And if the air is already saturated with humidity, and I wish I knew what the breaking point is for, the, uh, for them not to work as well. It might depend on the temperature too much. But arm coolers don't work when it's really hot and humid. The downside of not using those then is they are great for sun protection on your arms. They're absolutely amazing. Uh, when you're cycling and maybe you're running, you're wearing some kind of shirt that has a zipper on the front, you do that. Then when you're going slower, sit upright and unzip your jersey. And actually, I have three modes. I have jersey fully zipped and then either down in the arrow bars or on the on the hoods riding normal, right? And then... And that's for normal bike speeds. Going a little bit slower, kind of like half speed. Then it's sitting up, keeping the jersey still zipped. And that improves your aerodynamics. Because if you unzip your jersey, you're creating a big parachute. And then what that'll do is get more airflow over you and cool you down. And then if you're going really slow on the bike, like a steep uphill, then it's sitting upright and unzipping the jersey. Now... Lastly, on the clothing part, another thing that most people do not know is wearing bike gloves in high heat, high humidity is not helping the situation. I've only heard this one time, but it was from a professional racing cycling podcast with professional tips from the pros on staying cool. And it was ride without gloves and you're hands, you know, have a ton of surface area on them and they're in front of you and they will act as radiators and dramatically shed heat off of your body and make you feel a whole lot cooler. Now I've done this a bunch and I also used to ride motorcycles and the number one tip you first learn with a motorcycle after wear your helmet is wear gloves. Because when you fall, the first thing you do is put your hand out and your hand's going to get shredded. So I would only take this tip into account if you're riding a route that you know really well and you know where all the hazardous areas are and you're not racing and you're going to take the turns at a casual pace and your risk of falling. If you like never fall down on this route, then, and you're not going at a breakneck speed, then, you know, not wearing gloves will keep you a whole lot cooler and also your risk of actually falling is so small you don't really have to worry about it. Oh, and another tip that occurs to me, I'm going to do it right now because I'm about to go leave on a bike ride, is soak your jersey in water before you leave. The first part of your ride, when you first get on the bike and start pedaling in this high heat, will feel fantastic. 
And it's the getting started on things that's always the hardest part. Now, pro tip on this is if you just go soak your jersey, get it all nice and wet, and then have it in the house right before you get started, it's going to be cold and you're not going to want to put on a cold jersey. So put your bike outside, hang your soaking wet jersey on your bike. Your jersey's still going to be wet, but it's going to be up to temperature that's not going to be as cold for you to put on right before you leave on the bike. And if you're female and you don't want to go out there topless, then throw on a t-shirt while your jersey's outside warming up to outdoor temperature, but soaking wet. And then at the last second, right before you get going, go outside, grab it, bring it back in the house and then change indoors and then turn right back around and then go back outside again. I'll do that. And if it's really hot, like it is right now, I'll get my hair wet before I start to. And then when I start off pedaling, I don't need to start sweating and get everything soaked for it to start cooling me down. I'm already wearing wet clothes, wet hair, and starting off in the high heat actually feels pretty nice. And it's kind of a ritual you can do to kind of get you in the mood to go biking anyway. And then another trick is I've moved my daily bike rides. If I go on a bike ride, I moved it, moved it to the evening and it almost doesn't feel hot at all when you ride your bike late in the afternoon, early evening, because throughout the day, the humidity burns off. And it's actually, even though the temperature is higher, the humidity is lower. And then when you're riding with this breeze, even though it's 100 degrees, it's 95 degrees, 90 degrees, it's actually not that bad because you're on a bike and you're moving. And then also plan your route. So the last part of your route, you're heading into a headwind on the way back. And then by the time you get to your house, as you're wrapping up your ride, you've been kind of going into a headwind and, and kind of cooling down. And before you even go out the door, set a cold beverage in the fridge, ready to go. Sometimes I'll put one in an ice cooler on the front porch. So I don't have to come in the house yet. I can stand out there dripping in sweat in the driveway and start drinking a cold beverage while I'm looking over my bike to see, you know, what kind of condition it's in before I come in the house. And of course, also there's training indoors and that's a bike trainer and a treadmill, which I do plenty of on today's episode. We're just talking about outside tricks to deal with the heat of the outdoors. Now, lastly, the run, this gets really interesting. If you can run really late at night, then yeah, running in the evening it's kind of like the biking thing where the humidity of the heat, the humidity of the day has burned off and it's not quite as bad as you would think it would be. And I've, I've done that for years. The thing is, is I've really gotten to a habit lately of running with my dog and I love running with him. And we like to run in the morning when there's not many people around and people out with their dogs and less traffic because with a dog on a leash, you just want a little bit of less traffic. It's just easier. So we're running in the morning in this super high humidity situation. So these tips are even more important. First thing, if you're running with a dog, spray your dog down with water. We have a small backyard pool. I'll either spray him down with a hose or literally throw him in the pool. He doesn't like to be in the pool. He doesn't mind if I put him in. Um, it's not traumatic. I don't, I don't literally throw him in. I drop him in kind of gently and then he's soaking wet. And then when we start running, he's already all wet and it's got a cooling effect on him because dogs don't really sweat. 
they have to pant and also they with their paws actually their paws keep them cool and that's just nowhere near enough it's it's really easy to actually give your dog heat stroke when you're if you try to exercise with it in high heat so by dumping them in the pool he's all soaking wet and it works a couple days ago on a run i forgot to do that and then he wanted to stop and lay in the cool grass many times as we got towards the end of our run and today i threw him in the pool before we got before we got started and he never stopped. He was just fine the entire time. So that does work. You, and again, you can do that with a garden hose in your driveway. Now, for all the rest of us that don't have dogs or do have dogs, this one is critical. Design a run route that does not have long lengths of time running with the wind. Wherever you live, there's a predominant wind direction. From here, it's from the south when it's hot. So... I have two different running routes that I can use. One's hilly and one's flat for when it's really, really hot. The hilly one I've been doing forever and it looks like a brain. Like it's all windy, super windy up and down. And it's also not on trails in the woods. I mean, a small section of it is when we first start out, but it winds. So it's constantly changing direction. So you don't ever go with the wind and overheating because you're running with the wind direction for very long. It's very short, like eighth of a mile to quarter of a mile, little sections of running with the wind. And I can tell when you hit about half a mile, that's when you start to cook and things start getting pretty bad. So let's say that you have wind coming from the south when it's hot. Another thing to do and that I've been doing lately is you're not overheated yet at the beginning of your run. So in that situation, you would run north first. And then about a third of the way into your run, maybe not even that long, maybe about a mile into your run as you start to overheat, then you change direction and start winding your way back left, right, left, right, left, right, zigzag, jaggedy, changing directions constantly back to your house going into the wind. It is amazing how many people never really think about this and they just get, uh, they just think it's, it's just too hot to run outside. It makes a huge difference if you're running into the breeze or not. I have a wonderful run route that I cannot run in the summer because it goes due south. <laughs> and by the time I turn around and come back, I've got three miles of running with the heat with the wind and I will just melt down. But it's an awesome winter running route because if it's cold, that means the wind's coming from the north. And I don't want to step out of my door and start running into cold wind. I turn and run with the wind and I barely feel it. And by the time I build up enough body heat to endure the, a cold breeze, I turn around and run back into it back towards the house. So yeah, take a close look at engineering your running route so that it is optimized for never having long periods of time running with the wind. You will notice that there is a huge difference in your running comfort on hot days if you run into the wind versus running with the wind. And also I dug out a very, very lightweight camelback. It's really just a, a back bladder thing with straps on it that I run with. And then I can run hands-free with hydration and carry a whole lot of hydration with me. And then 
yeah, I can just sip on that the entire time. Now, throwing that thing in the freezer is a little bit different. I don't want a block of ice against my back while I'm running so much. It's so cold to put on right at first. It's not very comfortable. The With running, the breeze is way more important. Okay, and to top all that off, do not forget, I am on Instagram, Zen Triathlon on Instagram. I just got verified the other day with the blue check mark, so that's pretty cool. And on it recently, I have posted multiple videos on how to make fuel for long workouts, how to make hydration for long workouts. You ought to go check them out and see all those tips and tricks. And of course, also I post pics of uh, River of the Dog while we go running and just saw a massive snake the other day crossing the gravel road on a bridge over a creek. So yeah, it's always got some adventures in my life in there at Zentrathlon on Instagram and on threads as well. All right, so that's it on all that. Let's go ahead and start talking about tips and tricks for the Highlands Gravel Classic in Fayetteville, Arkansas, and also all the tips and tricks inside that you can use pretty much for any race, any endurance sport, anytime. Let's go. Welcome to the next level. All right, let's go ahead and cover the Highlands Classic Race Gravel World Champion Gravel World Championship Qualifier. And what we're going to do is we're going to go through all the race notes that I took after the event because I'll kind of want to go do it next year and I wrote down everything so that I can review them and I I have notes and I have these filed away for almost every race that I do and I write down everything as I think of it and then later I go back and organize it and put it into kind of categories like what what's a good place where's a good place to stay where's where are good places to eat what tires did I use uh how much water did I need how much fuel did I need how much fuel did I have left over what was the best parts of the race, what were things to watch out for, and just all kinds of things like that. It ends up being fantastic because I just go back to my notes and look it back up later uh, when I'm about to do the race again, and I can go, oh, yeah, yeah, that's where we got Italian food the night before (laughs) for the pasta. And, oh, yeah, that aid station was, that one aid station was really good, or uh, we got in here that I dropped a water bottle and how not to drop a water bottle again and it happened on this race which is pretty rare in gravel for me Um, but it happened so I need to take precautions for that so let's go ahead and get started the first thing is to explain a little backstory I titled this show how to save time in a gravel race top tips and tricks to do so and some people would be kind of like why why would you want to save time in a gravel ride or gravel race. And it's really simple. It's always better to be on time or a little bit early because then everything life just works out a little bit better because you get to see more, do more, just a lot more of everything because you weren't being slow for no reason. And here are some of the things that happen if you if you go slow, if you go slower than you could for no reason the heat of the day starts to build up. 
They run out of water at aid stations. That happened at Unbound. They run out of beer. They run out of beer and food at the end. The party's over and people are gone. And there's a bit of a problem in the gravel world. Gravel is kind of backwards at the moment, on purpose, intentionally so. And there are tons of marginal gains to be made due to just the ignorance of people. Not saying the people are ignorant, but they, due to people not knowing that these things can be done. Or also, there's a bit of gatekeeping with gravel. The old school gravel riders are angry that all these new people are showing up and they're trying to say, oh, you got to dress this certain way or you got to do this one other thing or wear baggy this or whatever or else you're not a real gravel rider. And that's bull crap. And especially coming from the world of triathlon where triathlon is an innovator and the stuff that we figure out, we end up changing other sports. Because we have fewer rules in triathlon where we can end up like testing things and trying things out and then it ends up carrying over. I mean, aero bars were actually used in triathlon first, and then Greg LeMond used them in the Tour de France and won. Yeah, some of the things that we know in long-distance triathlon and long-distance any other sport, any other sport, is liquid fuel is always better than solid fuel. But you got these people that are like dead set on carrying and eating sandwiches and then also wearing like baggy long-sleeve shirts and shorts. And that's fine if that's what you want to do. But if you want to actually finish the the race and you're actually racing, there's things like that that you can avoid (laughs) and just do a whole lot better. And I do have to say, though, that the upside of gravel is at the same time, it also has kind of a culture of anything goes, right? And I am excited that they only banned aero bars for the pro race, and that's just because some pro cyclists don't know how to use aero bars and it makes them nervous. And then they do allow headphones in races, but uh, definitely don't use in-ear headphones. You can wear the uh, Aftershocks or Shocks brand. Saw like three out of the top pros finishing Unbound all wearing uh, headphones. And they're the ones that allow you to hear uh, easily because they they're not blocking your ear. They're fantastic for cycling and running, by the way. And I'm telling you, these gravel races are really hard and you can be out there a long time. And there are definitely people that have to bail out because they're out there too long and they get too hot and they run out of fuel and water. It just happened at Unbound. And if you take some of these marginal gains and the tips that I give you, into account and use them where necessary, you can save a ton of time and then have a better time. And also the other thing is, is the faster you are, the more miles you can cover and the more you can see, right? Just like in a training ride. If I can average, let's say 17 miles per hour on a gravel training ride instead of 16, and I'm going for a three, four hour ride, I get to cover more distance. I get to see another road, you know, and I I just get to experience more. So that's why you would want to save some. That's another reason why you'd want to save some time. Okay, so why this race? This race is in northwestern Arkansas, which is uh, home of the Ozark Mountains. It's absolutely beautiful. And Arkansas is totally a hidden gem in the United States. People don't think of it very much. The three main mountain ranges in the United States 
are the Rockies on the west. They're the newest mountain range, the Appalachians on the east. And they're a lot older and they're more worn down from erosion and time. And the Ozarks are actually a very, very old mountain range in the middle of the United States that run east to west. And that's uh, the opposite of those other two mountain ranges. It's kind of unusual. It's pretty neat if you look at the topography on a map. So you've got lowland mountains. You've got four seasons, four real seasons. They get a real winter, real summer, real spring, and real fall. The, the color of the changing leaves in the fall are amazing. I've been there uh, for backpacking across the Ozark Highlands Trail, which is kind of like the Appalachian Trail, uh, twice. And been there uh, on a couple field trips in geography class when I went to Texas A&M. And it is just so cool and uh, very chill and laid back. Very, I don't know if I'd call it old south. It seems kind of old south, like Mississippi or Alabama or something like that. And... Um, but just big, big hills and mountains, and just so beautiful. And here in Texas, a lot of people talk about going up to Arkansas for the weekend. I'm going to Arkansas for a week. I'm going to go ride mountain biking. I'm going to do gravel. And I've been hearing that for years now, and I haven't done it even though I've backpacked there. And having backpacked there, I know what it looks like. And I'm like, oh my gosh, that would be so cool to ride a gravel bike there or uh, go mountain biking there. And also, once you get out of town, it's very rural, very quiet, uh, very few cars, just really nice. So this is just a fantastic place to go. It's an eight-hour drive from where we live here in College Station, Texas. So it's not terrible. It's a full day to get there. But there's a way to get there where you can either go through Dallas or you can just avoid the big city and just do backcountry roads the entire way. And it's the same amount of time either way. So both ways, we chose the backcountry way and just absolutely loved it. And this was going to be a competitive race, but gravel races are interesting in that it's a lot like, like uh, Ironmans and such where you have the pro field at the front. And then as you slowly get towards the back, it gets more to party pace. It's uh, the mullet haircut of, of racing where it's business in the front and party in the back. And um, as I get better and better at gravel racing, I'm moving up in the ranks like I did with mountain biking. And I like to do marathon mountain biking. I got to cover that in some shows. It is fun. Oh my gosh, it's so great. But Kai is actually really fast. He's the 18-year-old superstar mountain biker that is also uh, into gravel racing. I got him on the gravel so that um, he could get in road miles, quote unquote, and build up real endurance. You can't mountain bike for two to four hours here. And um, it's too surgy and too much coasting. You don't get real like bicycling endurance that way. You have to go do road. A lot of mountain bikers do that <laughs> to get competitive, to build up the volume of endurance uh, so that you can apply it in racing. And... He's going to be at the front of the race, and then I start in the back. <laughs> and then I like to just count how many people I pass and see if, I, if I'm getting better, you know. Uh, as I did mountain bike racing all last season, I went from I passed somebody to I passed five people to I passed ten people to I finished in the top half, you know. It's pretty cool. So improvement is one of the keys to happiness. 
So if we both do the same race, Kai goes off the front, I get to follow behind, and bonus, uh, two bonuses, we get to do the same race. I'm sitting there thinking, oh, Kai just went through here at like probably twice the speed I did. And well, I wonder what that was like. And I hope he's doing okay. And, and it's very distracting and it keeps, keeps my mind off of me so much. And then also, if he does have a problem, I'm there. And these races can be really, really long and, and brutal and stuff can go badly. <laughs> and actually in this race, I got to help him out. So that was uh, fun for me, uh, uh, disappointing for him, but we'll get to that in a second. Although he handled it really well. And then got back up towards the front anyway. And again, this is a UCI qualifier. It's the second year. They hosted a bunch of races all around the world. The UCI did. And then held the World Championship in Italy. And the World Championship in Italy was criticized for not being like a true, real gravel race like we have here in America, in the United States. And uh, I think they're trying to do the best they can (laughs) with with this. But... Now it's for real and it's on everybody's radar. This race doubled in, maybe more than that, maybe tripled in registration. And the times jumped big time as far as the, um, they dropped in time as far as what it took to get the top placement. If you get top 25, no, top 10%, I forgot what it was. Yeah, it was like top 10%, um, got a UCI uh world championship gravel race qualifying spots. And so that was Kai's goal is to get one of those spots if he could. And if not, we've gone to some place really cool and really beautiful and gotten a ride somewhere we've never ridden bikes before. It's just going to be great all around. So it was going to be totally worth it. So as we decided we were going to do the race, I started pre-training for it. I started training for it specifically. And this is where we get into some details that'll start saving you some time and make you race a whole lot better. First thing I noticed is they said many times that this race is hard. It was only, was it like 65 miles, which is short for a full on gravel race, like the premier event of a gravel race, you know, like unbound is 200 miles. So what's going on here? Why is this race so short? And it's because it's 95% gravel. Unbound, Gravel Locos are like 50%. Well, Unbound's more than that. But like Gravel Locos was like 50% gravel. And for a race to be 95% gravel, that's in itself kind of extreme. And also it was going to be really steep and hot. And they even labeled it the expert course. And I thought that was kind of unusual. And then I noticed that it had... Uh, they had two courses, but I noticed that you couldn't do the export, expert course, the long course, if you were over 60 years old. That is really unusual. They had no registration available for it if you were over 60. You had to do, there was the highlands, that's the hard one, and then there's the farmlands, which is uh, it was like 10 something miles, 15 miles shorter, and they took out the, um, the most extreme climbs. And technical stuff. And that started raising, I don't know about red flags, but maybe like orange flags. Like, oh man, this is going to get nuts. So I knew that for the distance, it would be slow. And the other thing is you go and look up 
last year's finishing times and you start to get an idea of how fast is possible, what's kind of like the average time, what are people in your age group, how long do they take? And I'm sitting there going, man, this is going to be a five and a half hour, six hour bike ride, even though it's only 65 miles. So on one hand, I knew it was going to be really steep. And on the other hand, though, I knew that I've been doing unintentionally just tons of heat training. So however hot it's going to be there, it's going to seem kind of normal to me, which is still terrible. <laughs> but it was going to seem normal to me. And it was. There's people from other places I'll get to later that talked about that the heat just got to them. And to me, it was just like, it was kind of like an average ride. And it was a very hot day for them in the mountains of Arkansas. Okay, so let's go back to what kind of bike I'm on. Kai and I both ride these magnesium frame gravel bikes from Vast, V-A-A-S-T. And they're fantastic because magnesium is almost as cheap as aluminum. It's super recyclable. It's super strong and it's super lightweight and it's almost as light as carbon fiber. So you get like 90% as light as carbon fiber for 90% of the price of aluminum. And another quality of magnesium, the material, like the physical properties of magnesium is it's vibration dampening. You know, like steel is springy, aluminum is stiff. Magnesium is vibration dampening, which makes it the most perfect bike ever for gravel because gravel is just this constant vibration of the chunk that you're riding over. And you can tell like whenever you ride one of these bikes, it's, it's so fantastic. So it's cheap and light. The only downside is on their current gravel bikes, it's called their all road. The maximum tire width on the rear is 42 if you're riding a 700 but it'll hold a 48 if you're riding a 650 uh, size wheel and on the front it'll hold up to a 50 i think yeah i've ridden a 50 on the front a 50 millimeter tire and the reason you want to go big and plump on these on tires as much as as you can handle is because that adds suspension to your bike and when you're going off-road, and, and then also you get a little bit of knobby tread on there, and then it'll give you grip and traction. And it's a little counterintuitive. You think you would want skinny tires, but with the added suspension of a fatter tire, you actually go faster, and you have more control, so you go faster. It's another uh, <laughs> tip for you right there. So I noticed that if I rode 42s, which is the max that the rear uh, tire width will fit in the uh, Avast Magnesium uh, all-road A1, whatever, uh, gravel frame, that I actually sink in deep sand and get stuck, like the bike comes to a stop if I ride 42s. And that's just a combination of weight. It's mostly just weight. And I'm a bigger guy, and I'm carrying a lot of water. So, yeah, and then I end up having to walk. And that really sucks. And one of the races that we did a bunch and a lot of the training we did was in East Texas and it has long stretches of deep sand at times. And I noticed people around me, I'm going on a training ride with Kai, they're riding across the sand with 42s, 38s, and I'm sinking and, and stopping and crashing actually, you know, because the bike just comes to a dead stop and fall over. And it's like a miserable existence and then having to push your bike through all that. But if I rode... 48s to 50s, 
I would actually float on the sand enough where I could keep pedaling on deeper sand, unless it was like tragically deep soft sand. And so I was trying to get the biggest uh, tires that I could. And over time, what happened was a few months back, I had my rear tire blow up, my rear wheel, some spokes, a spoke blew off and I forgot what happened. But anyway, and so I threw on a 650B uh, wheel and tire that's a 48. And so the front is a 700 and the back is a 650. Talk about a real mullet. And so they're different size wheels on my bike. I'm not recommending you do this unless your rear triangle of your frame will not hold a fat enough tire that you want to ride. Think out of the box and, and say, wait, can I fit a fatter tire if I got sized down to a 650B if you really want that fatter tire? My bike just happened to come with 650Bs. And so we had that wheel set laying around and we added 700s actually um, after the fact, aftermarket. Because it was during the bike pandemic. Uh, it was during the pandemic and bike, the bike shortage. So it was the, that's the only wheel sets that came with those bikes. And so we bought the bikes because the bikes were such a great deal. And the um, and we put but it came with 650s, but we put 700s on it. So I had this 650 uh, tire on it, and lo and behold, I can with a 48 on the front, 50 on the front, and a 48 on the rear, I can ride across deep sand and have a whole lot more control, and usually make it through. Uh, it rides a whole lot better, and you don't notice the difference in tire size. And the funny thing is that. Um, if you think a uh, 650B is smaller, I can't ride that. A 650B with a 40, I think a 48 tire on it is actually the same diameter as a 700 wheel with a like a 23 or 25 millimeter <laughs> road tire on it. It ain't that small. It's actually the same size as the road bike that you're going out and riding. It's just that a 700 wheel, a 29 inch wheel, it's the same thing. Uh, with a full, you know, off-road tire on the front, gravel tire on the front. It's actually just giant. It's not that the 650B is small. It's the 700 is uh, is just excessively large. I like it that they're that big. As a tall person, I'm glad that there's 29ers out there. It seems like a wheel size that's made for me. But anyway, so those are the bikes we're on. Kai was riding a same bike, um, but with 40 fives 40 42s or 45s on it and also i have a suspension stem on mine and kai does not but what kai has is he's riding the cantu carbon race wheels gravel race wheels that i won in a lottery draw after the el camino 205 a couple years ago and i gave him the kai because i'll break carbon wheels going on, um at downhill speeds off-road and he weighs a whole lot less than I do. And so they're much more likely to survive him than they are me. And also, he's the real racer right now in this sport, and I'm not. And the number one thing that makes you faster, the, t- the two things that make you fast on a bicycle is your body position. The three things, body position, your clothing <laughs> that you're wearing, and the wheels and tires that you're running. After that, everything is just tiny, tiny little factors. Those things are huge. So for Kai's racing career, I gave him those uh, race wheels. So he's, 
he's been racing in them and loves them. They're absolutely fantastic. They really ride so much faster than me, so he can really use them. So those are the bikes. Let's see, we get there to Fayetteville, south side of Fayetteville, and we registered kind of late because we were trying to figure out if we were going to do it and if it fit with our schedule and all that. And the best hotel that Emily could find that was kind of close to the race was a Comfort Inn on the south side of Fayetteville. And actually, I highly recommend it. It was a great hotel, and they had a breakfast and everything that comes with the hotel. And the breakfast starts at 6 a.m., which is great. And if you're looking for that hotel and you want to stay there and see us there next year, (laughs) probably, then the road that it's on, the street that it's on, is called Steamboat Circle or Steamboat Drive or something like that. And so, yeah, Comfort Inn right there. And then the next morning, we got up. And this is the, now the day before the race. And Kai had in his training plan to go ride for an hour, somewhere to, from an hour to hour and a half. And he wanted to pre-ride the first part of the course. And Kai asked me if I wanted to pre-ride with him. And I was like, well, one, no, <laughs> I need to save everything for this race. And uh, two, I just run uh, the day before. And, you know, again, need to save everything for the race. And also, I was going to ride in the car with Emily and follow him, and it's going to be a lot of fun for us. So Kai takes off on his pre-ride, and it's beautiful. There's tree tunnels, tons of shade, which uh, we currently live in kind of like the prairie lands of middle Texas, central Texas, and there isn't a lot of shade here. So every tree tunnel I come across is like godsend. And this place is nothing but tree tunnels. So beautiful. And very few exposed spots. Uh, So then you start thinking, like, how much sunscreen do I really need? Not much at all. And we were having so much fun that Emily (laughs) was standing in the middle of the car with her upper half out of the sunroof, like, um, I don't know, like Pretty Woman in the limo. And it... It was just beautiful. And then on the ride, we started noticing things like 16% grade on some of these hills. And having not pre-ridden it, I didn't know that my gearing was going to be a little bit short. I have standard gravel bike gearing, which is kind of like, what do I probably have? Like a 38 front and maybe, I'll, I'll have to go count it and come back. But I definitely did not have enough gearing it wasn't tragic but on the very very steepest stuff i ran out of gears and that's not ideal so if i was to do the race again uh, next year i would if i could i would um get a double chain ring if i took this race like very seriously and wanted to qualify i would get a double chain ring i think that would yeah i'd probably put a double chain ring on the front and that would solve most of my problems um the gearing I need for most of my stuff around here, I do not need that kind of gearing enough to switch out the rear cassette to be in the rear derailleur to be some monstrous thing like uh, some people do. Uh, the other style of mullet biking uh, where they put a mountain bike derailleur and cassette on the back and then um, road on the front. And that works great for the really fast guys and girls. 
And that goes back to that thing I was saying about the spirit of gravel is kind of like anything goes. And that's one of the things <laughs> that people are still figuring out. Once gravel racing got really serious, um, the fast people started doing these crazy things and now it's starting to become standard. Anyway, the course only being 65 miles was short enough where we pre-drove it in a couple hours, few hours. And, you know, Kai finished his, his ride like an hour and hour and 15 minutes in. We threw the bike on the back of the car and kept going. We're in a Volkswagen Atlas, by the way. And unlike road riding, you definitely want to pre-ride off-road courses. So in mountain biking, you, you pre-ride it, like literally on your bike. And gravel, if you can't pre-ride it because it's too long, you want to pre-drive the race course as much of it as you can. You can look on the course profile and look to see like what are, where are the worst parts of this thing, like as far as elevation goes. And also with gravel, you know, like what kind of gravel are we talking about here? And I did a bunch of research. Uh, I asked on the internet and also talked to some other people and figured out that the gravel actually changes in different directions from Fayetteville. If you go north, it's like this. If you go west, it's like this. If you go, seriously, if you go south, it's like this. And if you go east, it's like this. And this race was east and southeast. And somebody that had raced the course before uh, told me, and also I think there was an interview with the uh, race director that I listened to on a podcast. And this is unusual. Uh, They describe it as slabby. (laughs) You've heard of champagne gravel. You've heard of chunky gravel. Well, this one is slabby. And what they meant by that is there's more like bedrock with a fine um, coating of gravel on top of that. So it's mostly not chunky and deep gravel, which is like the worst. That's really, really slow. I rode through some of that this weekend here locally. They re-graveled a road and just laid down this just, oh, the worst gravel that you're just picking your way through it. And this stuff is actually, it's like champagne gravel on top of, um, yeah, like bedrock. And so it's generally smooth, but it can get kind of like ledgy, you know, or the one section of bedrock ends and then has like a little drop in it. I mean, just tiny, but that's kind of what it's like. And you have to be careful only because only in spots where like if you wouldn't call them creek channels or anything like that, but like little channels of water, like come across the road, um, they can create little, little ruts. And then those ruts can fill with, uh, gravel, which would be like ball bearings. So as you take a turn or you're going downhill and there's, you got these things and they're crosswise. And so you got to kind of watch out a little bit for those, but not too bad. But on the pre-drive, uh, the other thing we noticed was there it is steep, and then the steep downhills can have sharp turns in it, and that is a problem. <laughs> and we saw a lot of problems arise from that. So it was really good to drive that and realize this is a great course to turn the map on your bike computer, and you can look down and see what the course is going to do. And a really cool thing about having aero bars on your gravel bike, that's nothing. On my gravel bike, I have aero bars. And on Kai's, he doesn't. But because I have aero bars, I have the computer mounted 
up near the hands between the wrists of my arrow bars. And that's pretty far out in front. So it makes it really easy to look down and it's more of a head up display than looking down by my knees. And I can see what's coming and what does the course do? I'm going, I'm going downhill and I've got speed. Let's say I'm doing about 20, 25 miles an hour, even 30 miles an hour. And I can't see around this blind turn. So do I need to put on the brakes? And I can, I can look down at my, at my map of the course. And on the map of the course, I have overlaid my, my heart rate and the time, I think. And maybe the distance, I think. Yeah, I had time and distance. And on my wrist, I had my heart rate. And I can see that, oh, around this blind turn, the road is actually pretty straight, you know. But all around this blind turn, it does a 90-degree bend, like within 100 feet. (laughs) So it's time to slow down. And there was people during the race that I saw picking their bikes out of the fences. Uh, There was uh, Emily and Kai said that at the finish line, they saw lots of people coming in, banged up from uh, losing control and sliding out with uh, road rash of sorts, gravel rash. So yeah, it turned out to be really handy. And that's the thing I learned from watching Sid and Mackie on YouTube. Uh, Mackie is a pro, they're both pro uh, downhill mountain bikers, but he likes to have the map of the course, or pro mountain bikers in general. He likes to have a map of the course on his bike computer so he can see where the, what turns are coming up and it makes him faster. There's another marginal gain for you that you don't have to put on the brakes because you don't know what's coming. You can tell what's coming because of the map of the race course shows you and uh gravel races are like that they give you the the um the map ahead of time in case you get lost out there in the national forest and you don't want to miss a turn and also pre-driving the course lets you kind of see the worst stuff kind of the flow of things i've already got in my idea i've looked at the hill profile of the course i've calculated that i'm going to be like seven really bad hills and i'm kind of like how hard are these hills I'm like okay okay i got it in my mind okay and then in my mind I go, okay where does this hill and then in my mind i go okay and then this long downhill is like this and and that and i noticed there's several places where if you kept up your momentum it would carry you up onto the next road so you don't want to hit your brakes um if you don't have to and that's the thing i've noticed uh, from the past few years of mountain bike racing, while the show was on hiatus, I was doing a ton of mountain bike racing. Um, coming off of you know Ironman fitness, and I was a, a top ten. Um, what do you call it? I was a bronze, or no silver, yeah, all world athlete, Ironman athlete, like his top racer. You know, in my early forties, so got really good FTP, good power, good endurance. And why am I so bad at mountain biking? And it's because really good mountain bikers don't use their brakes until they absolutely have to. So they're carrying momentum into everything. And if you're not good, you apply your brakes too soon. And so when you pre-ride a gravel course, you can kind of get the flow of things and go, okay, it's going to do this and it's going to do this. And, and there's that one dangerous spot there, but the rest of the time, uh, yeah, probably just use momentum and ride through this as, as as far as you can possibly take it before you apply your brakes. So that's another thing to do is go pre-ride the course and, or pre-drive it, actually, if it's a short enough course and get kind of a flow of the course. It really did help a lot during the race. 
One thing, now with the arrow bars, one thing I noticed during the pre-drive, it was so steep and the downhills were so extreme compared to what I was used to and they were constant. I don't think there was a single flat spot in the entire race. I was like, man, there, I, I might just take off my arrow bars. <laughs> and then I thought, no, I'll leave them on because, uh, you know, the map out front really far is, is pretty smart. And, you know, I'm not out here to win this thing. So I'll, I'll take the extra couple pounds. And also with the, um, the roughness of the road, if, if my hands start to kill me, I will be able to give them a break. Maybe, you know, by riding on the, the arrow bar pads. And it turns out I was, it ended up being the right choice. I ended up, what, what happened was the perception that I wouldn't be able to ride in arrow bars because it was too technical was because we were in a car and we're driving about twice the speed that you would bike. And actually at biking speed, it was fine. I was actually in the arrow bars a lot. I'd say maybe like half the time, maybe at least a third to half the time. And they say that's the breaking point of actually arrow bars being handy is you have to be in your arrow bars about third to half the time for the aerodynamic benefit to be of help. So that's just for the aerodynamic. That's not for your, just for your hands. And um, we're going to get to the hand impact thing here in a second. But I learned a pro tip going into the race. My front tire had a couple of tire plugs in it from, you know, just training on it and was just would not hold air reliably it would it's by the end of rides it was getting you know low and soft on air so i thought okay this tire is pretty much trashed and the tread was wearing down so i was like i'm gonna get a and i also wanted to size down the front tire just a tad a 50 is a liability because it is so close to filling up the the fork on the front of the bike that you uh going through mud one time it did get jammed up and so one reason you want to size down is so that you ride that through that peanut butter mud. It doesn't jam in your frame and you get more tire clearance if you go with a narrower tire. And I wanted to size down to like a 48 if I could. And I have trouble finding a 48 with a slick center, which is wonderful for uh, gra gravel riding. You have a slick center in some tread on the shoulders of the tire. And what I found was a Pathfinder Pro made by Specialized, has a slick center. It's a really fast tire, and it came in a 47. And tires are weird. You know, they're, they're labeled one thing, and then they'll end up being something else. <laughs> so um, it, it'll say 47, but it'll end up being a 48, or it also depends on your rim, your rim width because that'll let, expand the tire out a little bit too. So it's all just kind of hit or miss. So it's just going with the biggest one I could find. So I ended up with a... Pathfinder Pro on the front and then a Maxxis Rambler on the rear. And another pro tip for you is that it's okay, like I was saying earlier, to have tires of different sizes front and back. If you're going 650B in the back and a 700 in the front, that's fine. The thing that's um, sketchy is to have tires with different tread patterns on them. So you want the same brand. I learned this listening to a mountain bike. Yeah, to a mountain bike podcast. You want the same tire front and back, the same model, because when they will both slide out the same way, right, under the same amount of stress. And a Rambler has is knobby and then a, a um, 
Pathfinder Pro isn't anywhere near as knobby. Uh, it, it does have tread, but it's not, it's not as anywhere near as knobby as a Rambler. And what happens to people is they'll get whiplash. The back end will slide out differently than the front and the bike will go sideways for a second, then regain control and then straighten back out again. And you see this all the time in bike wrecks where um, it looks kind of like a speed wobble, but it's the bike sliding temporarily, then straightening out and then it just whips the rider like a bucking Bronco and then throws them off. And so if you do go with uh, different width tires, different size tires, you try to go with the same model tire front and back. So you don't get that whiplash if, when one tire starts to slide out. And as far as suspension goes, the general consensus right now is that suspension for the rear of a mountain bike, of a uh, gravel bike, sorry, is um, overkill. You don't need it. And I agree with that. You just get maybe just a better saddle. Um, they make suspension seat posts that are pretty good now if you want to get that. But suspension for the front of the bike is a game changer. And they're still trying to work that out. They've got these like super short travel suspension forks. And then they end up charging just as much as they do for a regular suspension fork when it's only like half. Dude, I'm talking like, like a centimeter or two of travel in the front, um, which would be amazing. But you're, you're paying a lot for that. And a middle ground seems to be suspension stems are really nice. A lot of people ride those. Um, there's two brands, I think, but the one that's the overwhelming favorite is called Redshift, and that's what I run on mine, and it's nice. When I first got my gravel bike and it had no suspension stem on it, it was so rigid that um, when you go off-road and you hit a rock or a pothole or something like that, it, um, the, it, the shock of the, of the hit is so bad in your hands. I've got, a, I've got a hairline fracture in my left forearm that's really old that just will not heal. <laughs> and the first time I rode my gravel bike on real off-road, it, um, it refractured that. And I was like, okay, well, this has got to stop. And uh, put a suspension stem on it, never had that problem again. It takes out the surprise hits. So what you want to do is kind of like, instead is just have a, as plump of a tire as you can and as low of a pressure, tire pressure as you can, as you can uh, stand. And that ends up being fantastic. And with tubeless tires, you don't have to worry about pinch flats And when you go uh, lower pressure. Interesting side note about the 650B on the rear is it acted like an additional gear in the back because you sized down just a, a fraction from the um, a 700. It, ef it effectively, the mechanics of it, the physics of it is that it's, uh, it's like you've added another gear on, the, on your cassette. Big gear, you know. So it allows you to spin up that hill just the, the slightest bit better. So that was nice. And the other thing is nobody notices. It's the craziest thing. Nobody can tell. <laughs> the first time I did it, I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to be made fun of. And, like, nobody notices. It's so funny. Oh, uh, let's see. Okay, let's move on. We finished all this pre-ride stuff. Went back into town. The race site was about 25 to 30 minutes from our hotel. But it's a pretty drive through southern uh, Fayetteville anyway, so it was not bad at all. And went back into town and went to like Chili's or something like that and tried to get something uh, regular to eat that's carby. And they have a good selection there. That ended up working out. 
and Kai and Emily wanted a nap back at the hotel and I went to go get a haircut. So one thing that if you've ever cut your hair really short is you notice that it has a major cooling effect. And my hair was uh, definitely not long, but it was it was time for a haircut. So I waited until the very last minute to get my haircut. That way it'd be nice and short. And I went to the barbershop. There is a Great Clips or something like that um, right next to the hotel in the shopping center across the street. So I went and got my haircut nice and short. And also another pro tip for hot weather riding is um, make sure your helmet's white <laughs> or a light color like silver, white yellow, something like that. Red and black. A lot of people don't know this, but red is also a very heat absorbing color. When uh, I took a class in college where we went out to a parking lot and pointed a heat sensing gun, you know, um, that'll tell you the temperature of whatever it's pointing at, at cars in the parking lot. And black and red were very close to each other. It's very interesting. Where white was a whole lot cooler. And also my helmet... Is it a Giro? I think it's a Giro. It's an older Giro. But anyway, the reason I bought it is I have a TT helmet, you know, um, one of the long teardrop helmets that looks badass on a time trial bike. Well, that's one thing I have not seen in gravel yet. Oh, my gosh. That would be pretty funny. (laughs) But anyway, those are usually really bad with venting, as in they don't have any or not enough. And in gravel, you're going kind of slow compared to, you know, full-on road biking. So you don't get the airflow pushed through your helmet like you normally would. So you need more vents to release heat and have airflow come through. And so, yeah, I've got a Giro helmet. And actually, it's got a small crack in it. And so I'm going to replace it. So that's the very first thing I did is I was looking for a helmet that's white and with a shit ton of vents in it but that's also because i happen to live where it's just terrible with uh, heat most of the year but that's another uh, marginal gain right there get your hair cut if it's going to be a hot race get your hair cut as short as you can tolerate it and then make sure you wear a light colored helmet light colored jersey that's uh, real thin and also with uh, a helmet with uh, lots of vent holes in it don't try to do one of these aero helmets that has hardly any vents in it, you will regret it. When the races are hot, it's, speed is gained by cooling over arrow by far. Another thing doing the pre-ride that I noticed was this race, there wasn't enough road to carry the Garmin rear radar thing where at Gravel Locos, you know, I would consider it, you know, there was, it was like 50% pavement at gravel locos and a lot of it's texas country two-lane highway which is very few cars but when they're they're out there they're moving and this had like a couple miles of road that's it of pavement and it wasn't worth with all the vertical of carrying the extra weight of the uh, garmin rear radar so took that off of our bikes and left that at the hotel okay so four o'clock was actually packet pickup friday afternoon and we went back to the race site. The race site is this, uh, kind of looks kind of like a farm, almost a ranch, but more of like a farm uh, venue out in the countryside. And I was really impressed with all the swag. And what's going on is UCI is really pushing these races. And 
the UCI is European centralized. So they had, um, what are those bags that you, in the Tour de France, you see it right now where they, you know, they sling it over their shoulders as they ride through. You get one of those, a Mousette, is that what it's called? But anyway, and then just tons of stickers and tons of propaganda all about uh, Fayetteville. And also Fayetteville has got a lot of money behind it. It's got Walmart behind it, um, pushing bike culture. It's amazing there. And the the swag was just fantastic. We got good water bottles. We got great T-shirts, yeah, stickers, anything that you wanted. It was It was great. And it turns out that there was a party going on at the venue next door for us if we wanted to go over there. And they were like, yeah, go over there. There's a band and beer. And, you know, 10% of me is like, oh, yeah, <laughs> that'd be fun. The other 90% is like, no, don't do it. Don't do it. But if you're there to party and you want to barely survive the race the next day, go do that. <laughs> um, so then for dinner, we went to Gusano's, G-U-S-A-N-O-S. And that was right across the street from the hotel, the Comfort Inn. So now you're starting to get a kind of logistics of the of the area here and ordered pasta and went very light on the meat and light on the grease and heavy on the pasta and also light on the fiber. And then you're, you're uh, packing on carbs that you're definitely going to use tomorrow and you're staying away from um, stuff that's going to make digestion uh, and also kind of clog up your guts the next day. A lot of times people have trouble on the bike or on the run during a triathlon or a long bike race. And it's because of what they ate the day before. They ate a whole bunch of greasy meat and stuff. And it's uh, inhibiting digestion of the fuel that they're taking on. Their fuel's fine during the race, but you got other stuff that's um, ruining the party inside your guts. So if you were really serious about a race, it's like two days before the race, you eliminate all fiber and just start eating you know, healthy carbs. But it was successful. I got that written down as my notes is where to go eat the night before the race. And then we go back to the hotel room and start getting our bikes officially, officially ready for the race the next morning. And you can see on Instagram a picture I took of the cockpit of my bike. And on the left side arrow bar, I've got a piece of silver duct tape with permanent marker written on it. The mileage of every, the beginning of every hill starts at this mile. And on the right arrow bar, written on tape with permanent marker, I've got the ending of each hill. And then also, if it's got a dot next to the number, the mile number, then it's a aid station, actually, is at that, is at that mile mark. And I used that thing during the race nonstop. That's the other reason I left my arrow bars on, is I would have um, that indicator. And... I posted that and got a, a couple of likes from some important people on that that were like, yeah, that's how you do it. So I'm going into the race with a map in front of me <laughs> of how the race is going to turn around each corner and also where each hill starts and where it ends. So I know exactly how long, I, you know, how to dole out my effort. And that's kind of an old school way of doing it. I've heard, um, I think Kai's Bike Computer has the um, Climb Pro feature on it that the newer Garmin's have. But those still aren't as good as having the actual mile number and then the beginning and end and where the aid stations are all just where you can see it in big numbers, like right in front of you, permanently on your bars. 
And another thing you want to do the night before the race is lube your chain because definitely you want to be using wax chain lube for stuff like this. And it likes to, it works a whole lot better if it sets up the night before. So wax our chains. I've been using squirt as the chain lube, uh, muck off dry lube smells like bananas and it's really great, but I'm angry at muck off because their wet lube, uh, just seems to ruin drivetrains with just being a, a gunky mess that you just cannot get off. And so I'm mad at them. So I switched over to squirt, but I think the dry lube is just fine. I'm still using it's whichever one I grab first <laughs> squirt or muck off dry lube. And we also started setting up our fuel and water. And that's the last thing I'm going to talk about here before I take a break because it's getting to be late. We can pick up with this all tomorrow. So what Kai and I both did is two fuel bottles. And what that does is it dilutes your fuel out over two bottles. You want liquid calories. That way you're fuel is almost already digested. It's mixed in with liquid. When you do solid foods, you got to drink water with it. And then you got to, um, your stomach has to break it down further and you can get by all that. If you just go ahead and get used to using liquid fuel in training and then in racing, it's like no big deal. And I made bottles that were 400 calories per hour for five hours. And I was pretty sure I wasn't going to drink 400. I wouldn't be able to stomach 400 calories per hour, 400 calories per hour. But I also was pretty sure I wasn't going to make it in five hours. <laughs> so this was going to get spread out a little bit longer than, and I was right. I think I finished in six hours and, but spreading it over two bottles is smart in one way because yeah, it dilutes it somewhat. A five hour fuel bottle all in one bottle is starting to get pretty concentrated and and on the verge of not doable and gross, but spread out over two bottles. So now I got two, two and a half hour bottles. And the second bottle had a liquid IV with caffeine in it as part of the calories. And then also I had a Camelback with 72 ounces of water in it, but with a liquid IV and that liquid IV, uh, the pineapple flavored liquid IV has caffeine in it. And I use those every long ride I put, you know, in training, I put a liquid IV, pineapple flavored, uh, the one with the caffeine in it, in my Camelback as part of the electrolytes. And for race day at this race, that was going to take me through the first half of the race, that Camelback with the, uh, the caffeine in it. And I was going to drink one of those fuel bottles. And a strategy is, is you skip the first aid station of almost any race because that ends up being a, a cluster F <laughs> because everybody's stopping. So you just blow through that. And then at the second aid station is where you start thinking about possibly um, picking up more water and stuff like that. So that's another marginal gains tip is carry enough food and water with you so that you don't have to stop until the second aid station. And if you do have to stop at the first aid station, it's just for like a bottle of water as you swing through. If you're lucky, there won't be a ton of people all on the way. And that's exactly what it was like, by the way. So it's nice just kind of weave my way through that and just keep going on race day. But anyway, I also have a frame bag on the top tube of my gravel bike. And in that I had a soft water bottle that holds 16 ounces of water with electrolytes in it and also a gel flask 
which had electrolytes in it. So when I pick up water at that second aid station, I add electrolytes to my water. And I knew that in the gel flask, I had four servings. So I add one serving of that to every liter of water that I take on. And my plan was at the second aid station, and I think there was three aid stations total. At the second aid station, I, which is just past halfway, it was like at mile 40 out of 65. Um, I pick up more water, refill my Camelback with uh, water, and add um, a little bit of electrolyte to that. And then also I was carrying gummy bears in, oh, but gummy worms, because they're easier to handle. Sour gummy worms work really, really good. When you reach in a Ziploc bag and pull them out, um, they have texture to them. So they, um, they stick to your fingers better. They don't get all slimy and you don't drop them and they're longer. So you don't drop them. And the sourness is actually kind of a cool taste, uh, to give you something different while you're riding. And then you got something to chew on and they're the exact same perfect sugar mix that the uh, super fuel that I make that you should go check out on Instagram. I showed how to make the perfect fuel. Uh, I made a short Instagram reel, I think is what it's called. But anyway, and then also how to add electrolytes to your water. Those are both on Instagram at Zen Triathlon. And so that way, if something happened to my fuel, if I didn't have enough fuel, or if I wanted something different, and got this Ziploc bag of sour gummy worms, which are also really, really cheap. And I just had that in my frame bag. So that was it. Oh, and then... Kai and I both did different things with our race numbers. So something that's backwards about gravel racing is they're still doing, well, it's an unspoken rule, right? The old fashioned way uh, is to have your race number flat, right? And that is just tragically slow aerodynamic wise. So another marginal gain tip for you is look in the rule book and on and see if there's a rule about it. And then also look on race day and see if there's a what the fast, fast people at the very front of the race that are starting to line up. See how they put their race number on. What's going on? I'm recording. Sorry, had to take a break there for a second. <laughs> Emily's type 1 diabetic and I had to help her fix her insulin, remote insulin reservoir pump patch injection site thing. Emily's kind of badass. Anyway, you look around and see how people are doing their race numbers. And if the race doesn't explicitly say that you have to have the numbers flat on the front, like a mountain bike racing, they still do this, then it is a aerodynamic disaster for you to have it that way. You want to have that race number done uh, one of two ways. And what you first thing you need to do is look at the race number and see what the uh, timing chip, if it's got a timing chip on it, you do not want to bend that timing chip. And I just heard on the Trainer Road podcast where one of the guys was saying, he's an uh, elite racer, and he said sometimes you get multiple race numbers and he'll take pull the timing chip somehow off of the race number and put it like in his saddlebag or something. I don't, I don't know. I don't recommend this one actually because I've never seen it done. It was just a crazy story about the links people go to to get, to stop this because this is ridiculous to have a big flat plate in the front of your bike when you're trying to go as fast as you can. It's completely counterproductive. And um, what I did was I bent mine in a U-shape around the head tube and the, uh, of the I bet the race number. And 
because my race timing chip, the foam part of it that was on the back of the race plate wasn't in the middle. So I could bend the middle of the plate around the head tube and that worked fine. And then I had a bunch of little zip ties with me and zip tied it. So it almost acted like a fairing in the front that was, I don't know, maybe it was, that wasn't twice the width of my head tube, but it was a good half again size of my head tube, but bent completely flat backwards. Some people will tape them sideways to the head tube and the top tube so they're flat against the uh, frame. Kai had his tilted so much (laughs) that it was almost level with the ground. (laughs) And that's uh, what you do. And that'll save you, I should be going back and naming these things, uh, your time. I I didn't even mention baggy clothes yet. Baggy clothes, let's say over a six hour race, that's 10 minutes. Maybe, yeah, probably 10 minutes instead of wearing a tight-fitting jersey. And I just saw a video uh, yesterday where a guy was doing a race across wherever, and it was several days. It was like three days, and he was trying to break his own record or come under a certain time, and he missed it by like an hour. And I just had to hold myself back from making a comment. He was wearing a T-shirt. <laughs> I'm like, dude. You would have made it. it. You would have beaten your time if you actually wore like a, a actual cycling jersey that wasn't all bag instead of a baggy t-shirt flopping in the wind. But anyway, um, the yeah shirt is uh, the jersey is baggy clothes is like ten minutes easily, easily maybe more. It depends on how baggy they are. You see people wearing like ba- I saw people wearing baggy long sleeve shirts and. Then, and then baggy shorts. And again, people will get mad. I'm just out there trying to have a good time. And it's like, yeah, well, I'm trying to not die out there. And it was, it got up to like almost a hundred degrees. And the longer you're out there, the more in the heat you are. And then also I want to make sure there was cold beer still left at the end. (laughs) I wanted to make sure that I wanted to get back before all the cold beer was gone. I think before we left town to go. So on Thursday morning, I shaved my legs just with clippers. That's like... Over six hours, that's probably like two, three minutes worth of time. Seriously. Um, The heat shedding of a thin, lightweight, uh, light-colored jersey and uh, a light-colored helmet with a lot of vents, that's worth quite a few minutes right there. That's another five-something minutes, seven minutes. So what are we up to now? Almost uh, 15 minutes, maybe 20 minutes. Oh, yeah, especially with the, um, the front race number. Okay. That's enough for right now. I'm going to go to bed and we'll pick up tomorrow and I'll actually go into how the race actually went down, which is cool. Be right back. All right. So the next morning we got up and got all of our bike stuff together, all of our gear together. And it is, a, it is kind of nice that it's not quite as much stuff as with triathlon. <laughs> And also the start time is at 7.30 instead of like the crack of dawn. So when we got there, there was a little bit of time to actually get stuff together. And yeah, it was kind of nice, even though even with the 30-minute drive over there. And when we got there, one thing I noticed was there was quite a few people that are still trying to figure out this gravel racing and asking things like, where do where do I put my numbers on the bike? How are y'all doing it? And also, oh, you're wearing a camelback? 
I see everybody wearing camelbacks. Why, uh, what is that? Maybe I should get one. And uh, another big time-saving tip for marginal gains is to wear a camelback. And also I've been testing a water bottle down the front of your jersey as well, and it's faster too. And the camelback allows you to carry a large amount of water and then it's streamlined with your helmet. Now, you know how your back can be kind of curved, almost flat, but your head sticks up so that you can look forward. Well, you've got this turbulence right behind your head and a camelback is uh, straight in line with your helmet and it actually fills that void a little bit and it makes you faster to actually wear a camelback. And the brand that everybody's going with right now is USWE, U-S-W-E, although I don't necessarily recommend that. Um, you can get camelbacks that are sleek. It seems to be kind of just a trend, like a trendy thing to get a USWE. You can get camelbacks that are nice and uh, sleek and really, really, and really streamlined. So the brand doesn't matter so much as long as it's kind of streamlined and you make sure that all the straps and stuff are tucked in. So camelback on your back is another few minutes worth of aerodynamic gain. And I waited until I got there to pump up my tires, not back at the hotel room. That way we have the pump at the site, which was actually a really good idea because I pumped up my tires to 35 PSI. Seems to be really nice for me on those size tires on mostly gravel terrain where it's going to be kind of rough and that softness is going to be really appreciated. If I was to ride my gravel bike on mostly pavement, I'd probably pump them up to like maybe 40, 45. And also I've quit taking allergy shots quite a few years ago because I quit uh, responding to them. And then I found over the years that my training has gotten harder and harder to get started. Like I've run out of air and then uh, this uh, building I work at, I have to climb up. It's got a new flight of stairs I have to climb up and or that I climb on purpose and I was like out of breath. So at the doctor, they said that I actually have asthma. Well, I already know I have asthma, but the reason I'm having trouble and also you hear like a little scratchiness in my voice, just like even right now, my voice seems to be changing with the asthma and I was prescribed Civicort and then that's just a daily long-term kind of thing. And then also albuterol for right before I work out. So I took a couple hits of the albuterol and then also put the albuterol in my bento box on my gravel bike. Another upside of gravel, by the way, and the fear of not adopting or the, and the no fear of doing kind of crazy wild stuff like the headphones is they are huge on bags <laughs> because it comes from a history of really like adventure riding. So you got top tube bags, You've got frame bags. You've got not so many bento boxes. Bento boxes is more of a triathlon thing, but they are there and they're amazing. And so I keep a little bit of Vaseline lip therapy in case I get a hot spot blister. And then my albuterol inhaler in the bento box on the front. And then you can take it every four hours. So I was just going to wait till about four hours in and then take another couple shots of that which lined right up with some uh, some hills, so that was kind of nice. And a thing to remember for next year is 
they don't have enough porta cans there. At least they didn't this year. Maybe next year they will have more. And there is a barbed wire fence that runs around the perimeter of the property. And if you just kind of wander off, like uh, you're not doing anything particularly interesting worth watching, then you might be able to sneak into some bushes and go pee and not wait in that long, long line. And the parking's in a field, by the way. So the race was getting close to starting. Pulled my bike off the bike rack and then noticed that my rear tire was almost entirely flat. And the problem with my rear tire is two things. It's got, I've I've also fixed these just uh, a couple days ago, a leaky valve. The valve core has a slight leak in it. You got to tighten it down really, really tight. And also it had a couple of leaky punctures where the sealant, they're tiny little holes, but the sealant wasn't plugging it. And if I spin the tire, then it would quit leaking air. (laughs) And so what I would do is pump it, pump it full of air and then spin the tire really fast and then pump it right before I, I leave on the bike ride and also tighten down the little screw on the valve core. And uh, that ended up being just fine. <clears throat> it held air. It lost about 5 PSI over the ride. But as the ride gets harder and rougher, the little bit of more cushion was is tolerable and maybe even a little bit preferred after a while. Uh, since then... Uh, pro tip trick you can do this with a bathtub uh we've got a swimming pool in our backyard i took the wheel off my bike and dunked it in the water so that the tire and rim and the valve stem was all underwater and you know rotated it until i could find bubbles coming out that's a really cool way to figure out where your tire is leaking because you can use like soapy water and it'll create soapy bubbles uh, but valve stems kind of a tough one to do so i figured these things out the ones i just told you just a couple days ago and plugged that little hole and then also put a new valve core in. You can order valve cores on Amazon, like a, just a, like 30 of them for like five bucks. And I just keep them in our pile of bike stuff. And when your tire will not inflate, like you are pumping it and it's just taking forever for it to inflate and, it's, and then you're trying to let air out and it's just gunked up, all you got to do is replace the valve core actually most of the time. And those are super cheap if you order a bunch of them yourself. And uh, when you replace the valve core, you pull it out and then run something through the tube. I use a twist tie and uh, through the valve and uh, clear out any gunk that's um, getting stuck in there. What it is is just sealant is clogging up the um, the uh, valve. Uh, ideally, you store your bike with your valves at the bottom of the wheel but pointing up and then that does not allow sealant to collect in the valve because they're pointing the wrong way all right back to the race we're all lined up ready to go the front of the race looks serious it looks like straight out of unbound as far as the appearance of the people in the front it is legit people in body fit tight kit you Hydration packs, uh, lots of tattoos, mullets, (laughs) really cool bikes. And the bikes look more, the the more you get to the front, the more they look like they're riding just straight up road bikes that are um, with just bigger tires, but slightly bigger. I mean, they look fast. You can tell. And they decided to do a rollout start for the first 
a mile, I think. And it's because the start line was at the top of the property and then it goes down a gravel road and then takes a hard left and a very steep down pitch. It takes a hard left and then, I mean, onto another gravel road and then keeps on going. It would be like a disaster to start it from up at the barn where everybody was standing at the, at the start line. So I like that. It was a controlled rollout start, and that kind of lets people settle into where they want to be on a, on a rolling start before it gets crazy. And they said once they hit about a mile, the, the I think there's a, maybe a road that turned off, and they um, will let you go after that. And I have to say that rolling start – as the pace started picking up more and more and more was so cool. The line of cyclists as they strung out for a good half mile in front of me, because I was uh, sort of middle back. I wasn't going to do pure party pace. I did have some aspirations of trying to do as good as I, as good as I could, but the road started doing S bend turns through the trees with a slight up uphill and you could just see this rainbow of colors alive and like uh, snaking through the woods. <laughs> and it was really cool because as it climbed, you could kind of see from the side. There was a bit of a meadow at one point and you could see the road on the far side of the meadow. And the, the riders were riding alongside that. It was just really, really beautiful. And I thought, this is so cool. So what is the beginning of a gravel bike race like, especially if it starts off on actual gravel. It's interesting. It's different for where, depending on where you are. So in the middle back where I was, it's pretty low anxiety, um, but there is some. There's people trying to get around each other and uh, some people that are late, you know, trying to push their way through the pack. It's not it's crowded, but it's not, it's not terribly so. And the pace is pretty moderate. Um, there's a lot of drafting effect going on because you're a big group of cyclists. Oh, and there's just dust. It depends on the race. At Gravel Locos, there wasn't much dust because it rained the day before. But at this race, just dust. And it's not terrible, but it's pretty bad. <laughs> but it starts to get better and better. And you have to be careful just like on the road, if you're changing your position and where you are in the road, you can easily uh, sideswipe somebody or somebody else could sideswipe you and take you down. So you got to watch out a little bit for that. There's people that have immediate um, mechanicals that you got to watch out for and not hit into them. So a lot of that's similar to the start of a big road group ride. Except one thing is that in America, the gravel roads typically have... Um, more like they're more like a jeep track where it's two single tracks that run parallel to each other so the the rut on the left and the rut on the right are both fine but the mound in the middle between the two is where things can get a little rough so what's happened is the the ruts on either side are smoothed by car traffic and they're the most and they are the most safe place to ride and not get a flat. What happens is, is when you want to jump from one rut to the other because somebody is in your way and you're going faster than somebody or you're just like, hey, that looks, the grass is greener on the other side over there. 
and that only lasts for like a few minutes and you're like, oh crap, I want to go back over. And um, crossing over that middle is where the rocks are that are most likely to give you a flat. And it's only marginally more, but it is uh, statistically more. And there's a really cool trick to save you from getting a flat. And I learned this from mountain bike racing, something that mountain bikers do that road, road bikers never really have to learn so much. They just don't think about it is you unweight your bike as you go over rough stuff. And this is something that's so cool in mountain biking is uh, back to the thing of applying your brakes versus not to try to keep up speed. When a really good mountain biker comes across a patch of rough stuff, they will press down, they'll kind of not necessarily do a bunny hop, but what they'll do is they'll squat down before they hit the rough stuff and then push up. And then as they go over the rough stuff, they're got maybe like half to a, a, a third as much of the weight on their bike of the tires press, pressing on the ground because they elevated their their body weight off of the it's like a semi jump but you're still making ground contact so you've got control and steering but you just don't want to have all your weight on the ground <laughs> and so you do this whenever you jump from one jeep track on one side to the other is you kind of like squat down a little bit put a little bit of pressure and then as you go over to the other one, you kind of do like kind of a half jump. And at, so as you go over the rougher rocks in the middle, you're not putting anywhere near as much pressure of your tires against them. And you're much less likely to flat. It's a really cool trick. And then once you figure out how to do this, you start doing it all the time everywhere. It really works. And uh, you can't really do that all the time because of the turn in the road and how loose things are. It's just nice when it's convenient. Well, there's a problem, and this happened to Kai, when you're at the front of the race, the pace that you're trying to keep up, they, one, don't have as much choice of which side they're riding on. So even they're in a rut, and it's, it's, uh, it should be not too bad, there's still a sharp rock there, and they can't move over to the other side because everybody is trying to get to the front and there's just nowhere to go. And also another thing is you're trying to draft off of the person in front of you to keep up that speed. So you're keeping a really tight distance between that you and the person in front of you for that drafting effect so you don't get dropped. And then you can't see what's coming and you don't have as much, you don't have time to make a choice or to avoid the rocks. <laughs> So this all starts to add up pretty bad and I'm having a nice time riding along and it was at six miles in, I think five to six miles in. I saw somebody off in the distance. It's, you know, the, the 10th person I saw like this that was repairing a flat. And as I got closer, I was bummed and excited at the same time. It was Kai and I was like, oh no, dude, his all this all this driving and all this travel and money and stuff to come all the way up to Arkansas for this race and he's got a flat I mean like right at the beginning it sucks and on the other hand I was also really excited to see him and and also to try to be able to help him out so he had a cut in his tire 
and he was using Dynaplugs, which is this brass metal tipped tire plug. And the Dynaplug applicator, the tube, was when you put the Dynaplug in it to press it in, it wasn't accepting the plug correctly. And it was just kind of like a limp, floppy, uh, you know what I'm saying, kind of hanging out of it. So when he tried to press it into the tire, it was just kind of floppy bending and not going in. And I, he was frustrated. He'd been there about three to five minutes. Yeah, I think he'd been there about five minutes already. I went back and looked on my Garmin and Strava stuff to see how long I'd stopped. And this is another trick to do just for your own sake is you... You want to know like how well you would have done in a race if everything had gone right. So then you know you're actually fit, your actual fitness and your capability if everything had gone well. And that's always just nice to know. And I stopped five minutes fixing his tire. So the five minutes that he was waiting and plus the five minutes for me was 10 minutes for him that theoretically, if we wanted to know like where he stacked up in reality as far as fitness and stuff, Versus the pack, about 10 minutes. And there was another time. Oh, I'll get to that in a minute. I remember what it is now. And anyway, I twisted the plug end of the, the tail end of the Dyna plug really, really tight and managed to wedge it into that tube further. And then, because Kai, Kai was also acting very cool and calm, but um, a second person coming along is always helpful. Uh, when the other person has just gotten frustrated. So I managed to get the Dyna plug in, and then I had a CO2 that was ready to go. He'd already used up his and, uh, before he plugged because he was just doing – he thought the sealant might hold it. And so he was hiding his frustration. And I, CO, I Dyna plugged him and CO2'd him, and then it was leaking some still. And I spun – I said, hey, give me your bike. And then I spun the wheel. And made sure I got sealant where it was leaking and topped it off with CO2 again. And it was leaking out of the sidewall at the rim. And I was like, oh, crap, this this race is over now. But I pre- <laughs> I pressed it in a little bit with my thumbs and just kind of, I don't know, worked it a little bit for a second. And then it stopped leaking. So who, who knows what that was about. And just needed a better seal on the bead, I guess. And then... I did the thing, you know, where he was, uh, uh, like you see in the Tour de France, where you push the cyclist, the pro cyclist that's got a bike mechanical and getting back on the bike. I pushed him and got him going again. It was all f- so fun and really exciting. And um, we were at the point, you know, where it was more sparse cyclist, so it wasn't really packed or anything. And then he took off and then went on to beat me by like an hour or something like that. So that was cool that I actually got to help out Kai. And the other thing is, is I got to help him out. The up, one upside is, uh, even though it sucked that it happened so early, was it happened so early that I was only five minutes behind him. So he only lost an, an extra five minutes waiting on me to help him out. So that was actually pretty cool. If you know we were more hours into the race, he would have needed my help and been waiting half an hour <laughs> or more. But anyway, that was pretty cool. So... A strategy is, is do you draft off the racers in front of you or do you let people go? And normally in road racing, you draft tight on somebody. Uh, Gravel's different. And 
I haven't really decided, and I think it just kind of depends on the situation. You got to be able to go with the flow. Is man, if you can't, if you can't see what's happening, and you can't pick a, a clear lane where you're not going to get a flat going over stuff, then maybe um, you definitely want to back off of the draft a little bit. You still get a nice draft being, you know, a bike length or two behind somebody. But this thing where you cram up behind people, it just doesn't seem to work at the be- at, in gravel. And people that do it, if they're lucky, they won't get a flat or crash. Because, again, you can't see that the guy in front of you, the girl in front of you, is about to hit a patch of loose rock in, a, in the turn. You don't know what the road surface is in front of that person in front of you, and you could end up crashing. So my advice is if you're just a regular old age grouper and you're just out there to see how good you can do, but you don't really out, you're not really out there to win the thing, uh, don't draft so tight behind people so that you can actually pick a course and then you won't be getting flats. As far as sidewall cuts and big, big, deep gashes and tires where you think the, there's no repair, and even if you put in a spare tube, then what do you do? Because the tube's going to balloon out and blow out. I saw something pretty cool in the Tour Divide where they ride the Continental Divide. I think, was it Leo Wilcox? I don't remember, but it was somebody epic. And they said that they had a custom set of patches made up where it was something along the lines of this uh, flex tape on wax paper so go to the hardware store buy that flex tape stuff that stuff is crazy or you could use duct tape same thing and then you stick it to wax paper and then roll it up keep it in your saddlebag or however you want to store it and then you have burly patches that will hold up to keeping your your uh, tire together and keep an inner tube in the tire. And because it's on wax paper, it actually will come off like really well and you can apply it and you can just get these big chunks of these things. It'd be pretty cool. I haven't done that yet, but I'm thinking about doing that. And on the flat tire thing, that reminded me there was a recent, was it Half Ironman, St. George? Sam Long had f- flat tire after flat tire after flat tire on the front two, on the front, on the front wheel of his bike and ended up having to drop out of the race. And that sucked, man. Okay, back to our race. Something that happened to me and the reason I was five minutes behind Kai is by the time I got to him, I'd already drop, dropped my chain. Blah. I had already dropped my chain like once or twice and the total count for dropped chains on my bike was like five and it was all in the first half and then I started riding a different style which I'll tell you in a second but also I had ordered a chain catcher and ordered one and then decided to put it on Kai's bike kind of like the wheel thing (laughs) he's the better racer so he'll get all the cool gear and I put it on his bike and he said it worked amazing he never had a drop dropped chain and he had like three or more dropped chains uh, last race at Gravel Locos. We both did. What happens is you're going downhill and it's rough. And as you're pedaling, the chain bounces and you're rotating the, the teeth on the crank and that chain ring. And it takes a bounce. and The chain gets out of line just a little bit. 
and then skips off as you're pedaling. This was so frustrating because you've got all this momentum going downhill and unlike on the road, you can't reach down and put your chain back on, which is a skill in itself. It is just too rough and dangerous on gravel if it's uh, steep. And this gravel, while it was slabby, um, the steepness of the downhills made the, any roughness was pretty pronounced. And the way I alleviated the problem is not ideal. But what I did is I quit pedaling once I got <laughs> up to speed on a downhill anything extreme. And then before I started pedaling again, I would look down at my chain ring and kind of like if you were looking to see if you had a double chain ring, you know, are you in the front? Are you in the small or the big chain ring? I would look down and make sure that the chain was actually on the the chain ring and not about to come off. And that saved me for the rest of the race. It's not the way you want to do it, but it's the way to save the rest of your race if you have this problem. And yeah, instead of that, get a double chain ring or get a, um, a chain catcher. So back to more of the beginning of the race and the pacing, I was trying to keep my heart rate kind of low. The first, I mean, the race goes uphill immediately and there's a little bit of excitement at first and you've got adrenaline and stuff like that. So you can afford to burn a little bit of extra calories, a little burn off a little bit of extra adrenaline and cause you're going uphill and uh, have your heart rate go um, and have your heart rate run high, but not too high. Try to restrain it. It's still going to be high anyway, especially because the excitement, if you had coffee and caffeine. So that's all normal. Pro tip, if you're doing triathlon and you come out of the swim and you get on the bike and you're doing a road triathlon, say Ironman Texas, and you're pedaling along, or the two that I do locally a lot is Galveston and um, Houston, and they're really flat. <clears throat> so your heart rate's high, but what you do is you look at your power. And your power on your bike, bike computer will tell you how much work you're actually doing. So you kind of ignore your heart rate and do power instead. And I don't have a power meter on my bike, on my gravel bike. <laughs> so I can't really do that. So I was just like, well, my, it's okay for my heart rate to be kind of high. And it'll, it'll come back down. And it did. But you want to start thinking you want you want to be thinking this needs to come back down and back down let's let's chill and relax a little bit and over the next half an hour or so it'll start coming back down and that's the strategy to take it works really well so we're riding along and i'm having a really good time this course is fantastic it's technical time is flying by uh the first you know, many miles of it is general uphill as you're getting up into the mountains. I'm getting frustrated having dropped chains, but I'm kind of excited that I got to help Kai. I'm kind of bummed that Kai needed help. But in general, it's just typical stuff, and it's a lot of fun. I'm having a great time. Oh, and another thing is I was wearing headphones, and during the pre-drive, a pro tip is to see what kind of signal coverage you got out there. This is a big thing in gravel. A lot of road racing, triathlons and stuff, you just assume that you got cell coverage pretty much everywhere you go. Gravel racing is not like that. A lot of the races are out in the National Forest, out in the boondocks somewhere, and you can get a lot of places with no cell signal. So what I noticed was during our pre-ride, our pre-drive, I 
put my phone, I listen to Pandora. So I put my phone on streaming music and just paid attention to how often it dropped out. And it dropped out a lot, like a lot, a lot to the point where I knew that I was going to be really frustrated uh, with spotty coverage. So uh, the day before I went online and downloaded playlists of music. So I had music to listen to that was already stored on my phone. I think I had a live concert of Marilyn Manson. I did not mean for that to be the one I picked, but it ended up being pretty interesting. And then I had Soundgarden, Bad Motorfinger, and then I had something else. Uh, Alice in Chains, Dirt, and the, the other Alice in Chains album, Facelift. So it's, you know, really hard rock kind of stuff. And I just put it on low background noise. And that's another thing that's been proven to help you out and make you go faster is just to have music. And I can tell you there's another huge trick is you can tell if your fueling and hydration is dialed in and you're doing it correctly if you're singing along with music that you like and you're in a good mood and you're kind of bouncing on the bike like happy. If that is happening, then your carb intake everything, your hydration, electrolytes, everything is spot on. It's amazing. If you're not, and you're kind of grumpy and whatever, even though it's like a song that you really like, that's a problem. That's an indicator right there. And I'll get to more of that in a minute because I was able to use that towards the end of the race. Now, remember, I didn't actually ride the course and I realized something (laughs) as I was riding the course. It was fun, like, oh, learning how to, to... to ride the slabby gravel that I'd never really ridden before. And uh, so that's kind of cool. I'm learning a new kind of gravel and how it handles, how my bike handles it. So it's just all like stimulus and response. It's just fantastic. And then we started getting into some uphills that were really, really steep. And I was shifting down and then realizing that I didn't have enough gears. And At times, I was doing very, very low cadence, like 40 RPM, 50 RPM maybe, and barely climbing up, but trying not to overwork my legs doing it. And I I was able to do a couple hills like that without having to get off and walk. And I noticed that there was people that were passing me just spinning, not tons, but about like the people that were passing me were ones that were spinning. The people that were getting off their bikes and walking were people that had the same gearing I, I had. So this race, definitely you want to have a better gearing than the standard gearing on a standard gravel bike. I'll try to make a, I'll make a mental note to try to remember to go back and at the end of this, uh, say what my gearing was, what was my biggest cog, and what was my front chain ring, so that you'll know you need more than that. Uh, many years ago, I used to ride a fixed gear bike and a single speed bike. I did the MS-150 on a single speed on some really hilly stuff. And I can ride uphill in a big gear uh, pretty well. I know how to pull up on the pedals and also to have really, really good balance and how to stay on the bike as long as possible. But there's a problem in that you go in too low of a cadence for too long, you'll start to feel burning in your legs. And that's bad. You don't want to have that start happening at the beginning or early on or even halfway through the race. You want to save your legs for the end of the race when they start getting really, really tired. And you'll regret cranking slowly at high torque up these hills. 
and I was getting kind of close to the second aid station. I blew through the first aid station, getting kind of close to the second aid station, and my legs were starting to burn up this really steep pitch. And it was shaded, it was beautiful, and I was going so slow going up this thing that I said, ah, oh, it's time to walk. And uh, that was kind of a bummer. I didn't expect to have to walk up anything, but um, I did. And I walked, I don't know, like a minute or two up this pitch. And also I, I timed it. Another thing that you do is time your walking breaks if you have to go up a hill with a pee break. It's really, really smart. A great time to get off the bike is halfway up of a really steep hill. That way you, you've used up some energy and then halfway up, take a pee. And then by the time you're done peeing, your legs feel better. And then you can continue with the rest of the, of the hill that's really difficult with fresher legs. Uh, people too often, they'll try to do the entire hill and then take a break at the top. They tell themselves, you know, it's like a goal. I'll take a break at the top. Um, I've done lots, like I've said, lots of backpacking up mountains and stuff. And that's not a smart strategy. <laughs> Once you get to the top, there's already a break built in. It's already easy. That's not where you want to take a break. Take a break halfway up and that you'll make up that time going faster up the second half of the hill because you took a, a short break. So anyway, I laid my bike down and then went behind a tree and peed and then picked my bike back up and started uh, walking and then it kind of leveled out enough where I could get back on the bike pedaling again. And this was at about three hours in and I was coming up to the next aid station and I went over the top of this hill and then down and then I reached, it was time for me to swap from my first water bottle to my second, my first fuel bottle to my second fuel bottle. And when I did and reached down, my hand just grasped empty air and I was like, what? And I have done a lot of gravel riding on some rough stuff. I've, done, I've been mountain biking on my gravel bike and I have not lost a water bottle off this bike. But this, the, the speed on how steep the downhills were here combined with the roughness of gravel just was a combination that knocked my water bottle, my second water bottle, the one that's on the seat tube, uh, off my bike. So now I got a crisis. I don't have any fuel for the second half of the race, any planned fuel of my own stuff that I've made for the second half of the race. And this is where we go into problem-solving mode, which is a lot of fun if you can come up with a solution and if it works. And is also very reminiscent of Iron Man. Iron Man is not about how fast you can be with no problems. Iron Man is so long that there's going to be problems. It's surviving death by a thousand cuts. <laughs> You have to have a plan A and then a plan B and then a plan C and a plan D for all the situations that could pop up on all three sports. So having years of experience with that, I immediately go into problem-solving mode. And also I went to uh, Marine Corps military school, and so I have a Marine Corps upbringing. And the mindset is it's kind of fun to like figure out how to get around this obstacle, how to solve this problem. So while I'm coasting uh, downhill and then up the next hill and then downhill and up the next hill, I'm, my gears are turning in my mind. I've still got a little bit of fuel. I can make it to that aid station. I've got some gummy worms. I can make it to that aid station. Still got a little bit of water, reserve water in my uh, frame bag. 
and I can make it to that aid station. What am I going to do when I get to that aid station? And I thought the first thing to do is see if they have any gels. If they have gels, I will make fuel. I'll squeeze a whole bunch of gels into a fuel bottle, into my front fuel bottle, which is almost empty, and then add water to that, shake it up, and then I'll have a liquid fuel bottle again. Okay, now what do I do if, if they're full of caffeine? And oh my gosh, it's it's so disappointing and tragic that races haven't figured this out. They put out gels at these races and they put out all these gels that are all caffeinated. So by the time you take like six gels in a race, that's like a course gels, um, you've had more caffeine than, than healthy for anybody. And you start getting sick to your stomach. And this actually started to happen to me. So anyway, I get to the second aid station and they have a whole bunch of gels. I pick it up, look at it. It's like triberry, which has some caffeine in it. I'm like, oh man, here we go. But anyway, I squeezed, I think I counted out how many, like three, four gels into the, um, no, six. I squeezed six gels <laughs> into the bottle, added more water, and then shook it, shook it, shook it when it was like half full. And then that mixed it up pretty good. And then filled it up with the rest of the water, shook it again. And now I had a heavily caffeinated uh, fuel bottle for the rest of the race. And I did the math. I was at that aid station, I think, for about 10 minutes total. And I did need to fill up my Camelback full of water and my other water bottle, uh, my other hydration flask, soft flask full of water and added some electrolytes to it. So I was like, it was, no, I think I was there like six minutes. But anyway, so like, I was like, well, about half of that was filling up this water bottle with gels to make my own fuel on the go again. And uh, so I took that time off mentally, like at the end of the race, how much faster would I gone? I think in total, I would have gone, yeah, I think, and with the drop, dropped chains and stuff like that, it was kind of stupid. Although those didn't even register on Strava as stopped time. I put it back on so fast, but you do, you have momentum downhill and you got to you can't start going back uphill because you got to put your freaking chain back on. So I think I would have gone somewhere between uh, around eight minutes faster if I um, didn't have these problems. And I started to realize on this on this race that the uphills weren't the only hard thing. The downhills were actually pretty hard too, depending on how steep they were. And I'd kind of visually made a, an imprint in my mind of what the hill profile, I looked at it so many times when I was making my chart or I was making my numbers that I had a pretty good idea of these hill profiles. And it was so steep and so rough on some of the downhills that I was riding the brakes a lot so that I wouldn't crash. And I got passed by, I would, I would pass this mountain biker guy on the uphill and then he would bomb by me on the downhill. And this hap started happening a lot towards the end of the race. Uh, but eventually I dropped him. And then, but my point being is that some real front suspension would have made me way faster on the downhills of that race. And I used to have a mountain bike with lockout front suspension, an Orbea Alba, Alma, with um, lockout front suspension. And gosh, I wish I had that on my gravel bike. It'd be so great because I could lock it out on the climb and then open it up on the downhill and be like crazy fast. Because this dude seriously went by me like nearly twice the speed I was going because I was having to be careful not to crash and on a full mountain bike. But of course, then now he's carrying mountain bike tires, which is a whole 
like heavier bike it's nowhere near the position in this aerodynamic so it's kind of a wash there but the front suspension would have really great on this course in particular but yeah i timed it just right for the 40 something mile aid station my camelback was empty everything i needed to refill all this water so it all worked out and that comes from doing lots of training rides and figuring out time wise like and heat wise how much water do i go through and when do i need to refill i only stopped and peed once i think during the entire race which is a really good sign that my hydration was pretty good starting a little bit dehydrated towards the end um, which is fine because the race is almost over and it turns out that there was a way for spectators to get to the second aid station and emily went and found it and was out there and saw kai go by and got a video of kai going by um but then by the time I was going to come by. She was worried that she would miss Kai at the finish line. So she left, and I had no idea that any, that any of this happened. <laughs> so it was totally fine. Now the race started getting hotter and hotter. And another thing on the pre-drive is I noticed that one of the very, 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 very worst hills, latest in the day, and with the wind direction on race day, it was going to be with the wind up a steep uphill that was exposed without any shade. And I'm like, that is... The problem hill right there you need to do your entire race up to this point remembering that you got to make it through this and you want to hit this being able to make it right it's like in a triathlon you always think bike remembering that you got to run after this you always ask yourself on the bike if i had to run a marathon right now could i <laughs> and if you can't well then you're going too hard so the entire point the entire race leading up to this one hill i was like will i be able to climb that hill in this heat like this and survive and not get sick or black out or something and it really it's a really smart thing to keep in mind so when i finally got to that really hot that really steep hill that was really hot got about halfway up and then started needing to walk but a whole bunch of people were walking it so it was fine i didn't feel bad about that but then a couple people you know like spinning by in a better gear and i was like god dang it and took uh yeah, you, you like switch sides of the road to stay in the shade of the trees, whatever side the, when it finally did get some tree cover, it'd be like one tree, you know, so you go to that side of the road back and forth, it had a whole bunch of switchbacks in it. But then something really interesting happened. I didn't have to walk the entire hill by any means. I only had to walk parts of it. And when I was on my bike paddling, I was singing to myself. So there's like a, let's say an Alice in Chains song. Um, again and again and again and again and again like that so I'm just like singing to myself like that. on the hardest part of the course and I'm like that's a really good sign that's really and I was oh another one is I was complimenting people around me that's how you know you've totally lost your mind I was like man spin up that hill you're doing great or come on buddy you got this if I'd pass somebody or somebody passed me and I'm like man that's wow or a nice bike, you know, or you got this, you'll be all right, you know, just talking to people and probably a combination of the caffeine too. But that means that my hydration, everything was fuel was just spot on doing really great. I'm like, man, you're doing it. Cause that's, you know, the fourth sport of triathlon. And the, I guess the second sport of gravel is nutrition so that you have energy the entire way. I just felt great. That's really hard to pull off, but I could tell that, my body had been going, had kind of gone into like a fat burning mode, which is a benefit of intermittent fasting. And I definitely don't suggest like 
real intermittent fasting where you skip entire days of food. It's just not healthy if you're an athlete. But what I've learned is that if you have to skip a meal because of something or you have to do more, not skip a meal, but you have to delay a meal by a few hours. It happens like maybe in your life, like once a week, go with it, do it, get over that point so that you don't get hangry and feel like you're going to murder people if you don't get a Snickers bar. If you feel that way, when you start missing a meal, then you are carb addicted, sugar addicted, and you need to get over that. And because I do that on rare occasion, maybe about once a week, I don't plan it. It's just when it happens. It's kind of happening right now. I haven't, I'm recording this over my lunch break and I need to eat, but I'm going with it and kind of delaying my lunch a little bit. And you can kind of feel whenever you're, you get so hungry that you're not hungry anymore, that feeling when that the hunger stops and then you're okay, that's when you've switched into fat burning. And if you do that on occasion, then when it's a crisis mode in real life, like say on the spike race, and I'm kind of low on fuel, well, your body knows how to tap into body fat and use that instead. So I was doing like really great. And then also as the race got hotter and, and more difficult, more towards the end, I knew many things. Uh, I knew several things. One was to make sure, one was that after mile 55, it was net downhill the rest of the way. So every uphill, I was like, yeah, but the downhill after this is more, right? So mentally, I knew all that. And then that really helped. And then the other, and then another trick that I learned just the week before the race was you want to avoid putting things in your jersey pocket behind your back that you need a lot towards the end of the race. So I had this like sodium flask, right, of electrolytes. And I remembered that before the race and I put it, like I said, in the bento box in front of me because I noticed that what, what happens, they say, is if you reach in your jersey pocket behind your back a bunch especially as you get it dehydrated and you start getting worn out, you'll start to get cramps in your arms. And that's actually happened to me in training. And I'm like, oh, yeah, I need to not do that. So that was a smart trick that I had my electrolyte flask in the bento box in front of me and not in my jersey pocket because I sipped on it a few times. And another thing I noticed was the abuse of the upper body on this course was really starting to wear me out, upper body wipe, my arms and everything. And so that was really smart to not carry things in my jersey pocket that I would need a lot. So now it's getting towards the end of the race. It's still very hilly. Like I said, they're in a flat spot on the course. But, you know, once you get towards the end of the race, you've kind of picked out some competitors that you're trying to keep up with or you're trying to not – you've passed them and they've passed you. And now it's kind of like you versus them. It's not you versus (laughs) the people at the front of the race. It's whoever's kind of around you because if you beat that person – because racing harder now, one, it's almost over. And then if you beat that person there and that person there, you don't let that one person behind you catch you, you stay in front of that person, then, you know, it makes a difference in the, the results. So now the real racing has begun. You know, up until this point, it's been kind of like a fun joy ride and just trying to be as efficient as possible. Now, with like the last hour, it's like, it's like racing against the, the self-selected people around you. And... I was climbing a hill and trying to not let this one guy catch me. And 
the and I started to get a cramp in my I think it was my left yeah it was my left leg because I remember I was pedaling with my right leg and I was like oh no because dude once you get cramps it takes so long to recover from them you can recover from them but you just it can really ruin you and there's more hills to come right so I'm like oh crap I gotta back off and this is where things start getting desperate and it gets kind of funny um I was going up this one uh, when it was flat and like downhill I would unclip my left leg and try to shake out my left leg a little bit and I was like kind of hitting my leg with my fist a little bit to try to work out the muscle and shake it out and then on a few of the uphills <laughs> I was pedaling with one leg and letting my other leg hang out and uh you can do that you know with clipless pedals you can actually pull up and it was working because now the hills, those hills that I did that on were less severe. And I met that one guy that I was trading back and forth with at the, at the finish line. And that was funny. We laughed with each other about how he, I, did he stop and puke? He said, and, and then I was, I said, well, I was pedaling with one leg or he had cramps. Yeah. He had to get, I remember I was coming up behind him up a hill and all of a sudden, um, and he had just passed me. Right. And he looked really competitive, and uh, it would be really great to, you know, race him to the finish. And he was climbing up this hill in front of me, and then all of a sudden his whole body just seized up, and he goes, ah! <laughs> like that. And then barely caught himself as he fell off of his bike and then walked around all stiff-legged. And I'm like, oh, he's got cramps. He's got cramps. So I started to pass him, you know. And then a little while later, I'm pedaling with one leg, and I'm trying to stop the cramps from happening. And I was kind of laughing to myself about, like, the whole situation and how much fun I'm having also at the same time because I know I'm going to make it. So we're on the final stretch, and he ended up passing me, and I couldn't keep up with him, but then I passed another guy that was having um, more trouble than I was. So I, in my mind, those kind of washed each other out and then came across the finish line. The finish line was really cool. They do the thing that I hate, though, is where you come to the fi- what you think is the finish line, and then it takes a hard turn, and then you go out and and do a dog leg for a little bit. So you think you're about to finish and then you're not. And then you got to do a, a hard turn and then come back to the finish line. I hate it when they do that. And anyway, oh, and plus it was the, the last quarter mile was across a meadow and a, a field that was rough, you know. Oh, my God. But came across the finish line and they're doing the awards for the, for the podium. And I came in, I think I did four and a half. I did four and a half and I was hoping to do five and a half, but I ended up doing six. And so that was great for me. And that guy uh, that had the major cramp seizures <laughs> was laying on the ground. And uh, we talked to each other for a minute and over a beer and there's like plenty of beer and it was good beer. Like there was IPAs and it was just a really great time at the finish line and wet towels and shade and music and the awards going on. And I got to see all that because of uh, lots of the shortcuts that I took to save time. And it all just worked out. So looking back after the race, the little marginal gains in action, it all added up. I I made a quick list of those. Uh, One is efficiency is about doing two things at once. So if you're going to stop and take a break. Make sure it's when you need to pee. If you're going to pee, make sure it's when you're going up a hill, 
right? And, and you combine all those things together. Uh, there's also a saying that happiness is doing two things at once. Uh, another one is I got a haircut, which uh, cooled me down, which made me faster. One, another one is smart placement of my race number on the front of my bike. Another one is the bike computer with the map on it so I could see where turns were and able to keep up more speed and more momentum through much more of the course. And then another one was looking at the weather and knowing that the wind was going to be from the south and because the course did south, went south first and then went north, I knew that the climbs at the second half of the race were going to be going with the wind and in the full heat of the day and some of them were sun exposed. I knew to save myself and be prepared for that. And those were going to be the worst things. So that's a thing that a lot of people don't pay attention to is which direction is the wind from and where does the course go and where are the hills in relation on the course in relation to the wind for that day and how's that going to affect you? <clears throat> people think, oh, you know, I'll be going into a headwind on the way out, but on the way back I'll have a tailwind. Well, that's not always the best thing. It's great when it's flat, <laughs> but when it goes uphill and you have a tailwind, you cook in that kind of stuff. So that's a thing to know about. A cool thing about gravel racing is that it's generally in the woods and stuff, and you can kind of pee anywhere, which is really great when people say, why would you do gravel? It's like, well, I don't have to leave my road bike on the side of the road and run into a, uh, around the corner of a building or something like that. I just go into the woods. It's right there. And then uh, metabolic flexibility, like I just said a minute ago, that was really good. You want to work on that so that when you – you just have more inner energy in general for longer, better racing. And then also if you have a crisis, you're not going to completely bonk. Uh, another one is if you notice a pain somewhere, you want to counter it immediately. Kind of like the cramp in my left leg. Well, immediately I took the weight off my left leg and started pedaling with my right. Um, I noticed during the race, you know, I get like a pain in my left arm. And then what I'm doing is I'm trying to control the bike too much with my left arm and my left hand and my left bicep or something like that. Like, oh, well, how do you counter that? Well, start using your other side of your body more. Because if you keep going with uh, pain in one area, and usually it's a balance issue. You know, so you think it's not, but there's people that have no pain and have no problems in an entire race. So it is all about form. So if you're noticing something, uh, you try to fix it immediately so that it doesn't get worse and worse and worse. And then all of a sudden you can't use your left hand at all because it's cramped so bad because of some reason, right? And then, uh, again, some kind of front suspension, minimal suspension stem. It allows you to go way faster downhill. And then also it saves your hands at the end. And then also with arrow bars, I was able to uh, save my hands even more because you're resting on your elbows. Uh, I People think that in a gravel race, you won't be able to use an aero bar. I was in aero bars 30 to 50% of the time. I don't, I don't know, but a lot of it. What would have saved me time is if I had a chain catcher on my bike or a double chain ring. If I had a double chain ring, then I would also have been able to not only not drop chains, but I would have had better gearing for climbing the hills. There's this uh, hub out there that if you're into bike tech, called the classified rear hub, but then you need a special wheel to go with it. So that's kind of a downside of that. It's a more simple thing. It's just a double chain ring. And then you got a big gear also for when you want to catch people on downhills if you're that kind of racer. And another thing that would have saved me time is if I didn't lose that second water bottle. So what in my notes, I've got for the next time I race, if we do the race here, 
and maybe other races too. You know, like these uh, Livestrong silicone bracelets that nobody wears anymore. Those are fantastic for putting around a water bottle. And then when you wedge the water bottle into the cage, it has got so much more friction on it and it's grippy now that uh, it's almost impossible for your bottle to fall out. Or you put the bottle in the cage and then wrap that, that silicone wristband around the cage in the bottle at the same time. And that'll keep it there as well. And yeah, you know, it'll be more trouble to get the bottle out when you use it the very first time. But then after that, um, and then you would rotate that full bottle to the front of your, of your bike because when it's on the down tube, it's, well, when it's on the seat tube, it's out of sight, out of mind. You don't really see it as well. And you definitely don't want to do bottles behind the saddle. You rarely see that in gravel. I don't think almost ever. And it's because keeping those things attached is so much more difficult and you could lose it and never know it. And it's out of sight, out of mind. So you don't know that you've lost it until it's like miles behind you. If you empty your front bottle cage bottle first, but your second one on your seat tube that you don't can't see as well, is kind of strapped down, right? Well, if you lose your front one, you're going to know it almost immediately. You're going to feel it like come out and like hit your feet and stuff like that. The second one, you might not notice it. So just go ahead and strap that one down until you need it. Another one is Dyna plugs, which we used and worked on Kai's bike once we got it to stick in. There's two things with that. One, you want to have it preloaded in the plug inserter thing. A lot of people don't do that. Um, in fact, my last tubeless repair plug that I just did, yeah, you have the bacon strips all in um, in um, you know the little waxy paper. But what smart people do is they go ahead and put one of the bacon strips in the needle applicator of the, uh, the, pun- the puncher. They go ahead and already have that in there. <laughs> so when they open it up to use it, it's already got the – they don't have to pull a bacon strip out of the bacon strip set and then put it in, thread it through that thing. It's just already there, ready to go. And – that's something that I need to do and Kai should have done. And then there's a high-end Dynaplug applicator that actually has a CO2 thing built into it. This is really cool. When you jam it into your tire to plug the hole, the handle of the thing actually can hold a CO2 cartridge. And then you press the lever and it injects the CO2 behind the plug and fills it up at the same time that you're plugging it. It's really freaking cool. And I've heard that that's what the top end pros love to use. And then going over my race numbers, yeah, I spent a total of 16 minutes stopped. I have the numbers here. Five minutes of that was helping Kai. Five minutes from dropping a fuel bottle and remaking that fuel bottle. So I had an extra 10 minutes that ideally I wouldn't have had if things have gone better. And when I take that uh, five minutes, so I would have had, I would have gone, so I would have gone 10 minutes faster if nothing had gone wrong. And then I took that 10 minutes and then said, okay, I go to the results and I look to see how many places that would have moved me up and it would have moved me up uh, zero. <laughs> I was like 11 minutes or 12 minutes behind the person that finished in front of me. I don't remember what it is. So it would have made no difference at all, but it was, so it would have made a, a, um, for my age group, it would have, 
it's just kind of good to know just like time-wise for next year when I look at like what's my estimated time that it's going to take me to be out there and how much water and fuel do I need, I've got a, I've got a number for that. And I got 15th out of the 32 people that registered for the race in my age group. So I was halfway. Some interesting stats on Kai. Kai was the fastest 19 and under athlete. They just didn't have a 19 and under age group. They had an 18 and under. And so Kai was faster than all the 18 and unders, even though he's 18. But he's going to be 19 by the end of the year. So he had to race 19 to 20. 19 to 39 was this huge age group, which is kind of ridiculous. And, yeah, he got a flat from following the leaders too closely. There was double the participants this year than there, were, than there was last year. And it was some of the best racers in the sport. It's one of the only races in North America that's a qualifier. So it was really cool for us to, to get there. And Kai would have gotten ninth place last year but because of the huge increase in numbers he got 22 out of 49 in just his age group there was a guy at the finish line from colorado that came from golden colorado and he said the race was really hot for him he struggled with it but the altitude wasn't a problem and uh, another just thought is uh, when you're riding with a hydration pack, it's a lot like mountain biking. It allows you to hydrate hands-free. You know, all you got to do is take your hands off the bars for a second to get the nozzle into your mouth. And then you can put your hands back on the handlebars and hydrate. So people that don't use hydration packs end up getting, are much more likely to get dehydrated because they're not um, able to drink as often as they would like to because they got to keep their hands on the bars and they can't ride one-handed drinking uh, out of a water bottle. Um, another thing I would do is <clears throat> I would have a second Camelback bladder. I own two of them. And I would have it frozen and have Emily give it to me at the aid station uh, next year. I asked and they said that she could. And that would be amazing to have cold water for the second half of the race. I did run out of water perfectly, which was really good timing. Again, back to lots of training and knowing how much hydration I take and having a good estimate of how much time. Um, I really liked the race in a way that it was unlike Unbound and the big mud mess that that thing was. Even if it rains at this race, there's going to be no significant mud. And that is a really big deal because if you get mud, then you have to start looking at changing your tire sizes and choices, and that starts getting expensive. And also mud can destroy your bike anyway. Like it gets, your drivetrain can get caught up and your derailleur gets ripped off. And gravel racing is hard enough as it is. It's called gravel racing, not mud racing. And then the very last thing was for dinner after the race, there was a Thai place, Thai food, which is fantastic with all the rice and oh, it's so spicy. It's so great. In that same shopping center right across from the hotel. And then on our drive home from Arkansas the next day, we took our time. It's so beautiful. We went through the mountains back towards Texas. And then southeastern Oklahoma is also looks very much the same. And big, beautiful lakes and uh, mountain streams. And we took a break and went hiking on a trail for a minute and walked out into like two different uh, mountain streams. And it's just so beautiful. I would really like to make a vacation out of it next year and stay a little bit longer. Oh, yeah, my hands were really sore the next day. So I'm so glad that I had the arrow bars. My, my, um, that's a testament to how much abuse 
you took on this course as far as needing front suspension of some sort. And then also my bike computer, I was using my Garmin 945 uh, watch, Forerunner watch as my bike computer. And I think the navigation of having the map of the course runs through battery a whole lot faster. So if you're doing that, that trick where you have the map in front of you, that constant panning and refreshing of the screen as it, and twisting and turning of the screen, I think it uses a lot of the battery and a lot of the processor and it can run through your battery pretty fast. So make sure if you do that, that you've tested it out so you don't end up having no battery in your bike computer dying. And also make sure that you've charged up your device all the way to the top before you start your race. All right, let's go ahead and wrap up this show. I'm sure next episode we'll cover a little bit more about the Tour de France. The time trial that would have made the difference in the race for Pojakar was today. And he switched bikes and went without a time trial bike for the last part. And... That was actually into a headwind. I went and looked up the weather for the town, and I think that the bike change and the going into a headwind without the right bike, even though it was uphill, probably cost him the tour. And it's funny how people that don't come from a time trial or triathlon background are just like in complete denial of how much aerodynamics makes a difference. But it's it's a proven science. It makes a ton of difference. And then when you add the fact that it was into a headwind, that's even more incredible that they switched bikes because your weather and wind direction is completely predictable on race day. But yeah, let's go ahead and wrap this up. Next episode will probably also be a lot of training log. I really miss recording those, my little comments about what I experienced and how I did things and how I do it differently after almost every single workout. That's really good stuff. And if you got something out of all the tips and tricks that I listed out in this episode, make sure to go over to zentrathlon.com and check out the support the show donation button. That would really help out the show. I just used some money from that fund a couple days ago to re-up my pass at my local lap swimming pool. And then as always, don't forget, I do full triathlon and any endurance sports coaching using training peaks. You can be anywhere in the world. And with the 20 years of experience of doing this sport, We can set you on the right path and make sure you accomplish your goals. Okay, that's it. Everybody stay safe out there. Work the uphills, cruise the downhills, and keep the rubber side down. Out.